Dorothy Valance is married to a man named Don. They have a son. I think the son and the husband have been kidnapped by a man named Frank. Frank has done this to force Dorothy to do things for him. I think she wants to die. I think Frank cut the ear I found off her husband as a warning for her to stay alive. Frank is uh, a very dangerous man. Welcome to Now Playing's review of Blue Velvet. I have your disease in me now. Part of the Now Playing David Lynch review series. See that clock on the wall? Yeah. Five minutes from now, you're not going to believe what I've told you. Hosted by Stuart. You're from the neighborhood. Yeah. Your neighbor. Jacob. I don't know where you come from, but and Arnie. I don't know if you're a detective or a pervert. Join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we continue looking at all of David Lynch's films. No one will suspect us because no one would think people like us would be crazy enough to do something like this. And join Stuart, Arnie, and Jacob at NowPeakingPodcast.com for reviews of every episode of the Twin Peaks series. There are opportunities in life for gaining knowledge and experience. These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Get ready to fuck! You fuckers, fucker! You fucker! Listener discretion is advised. Here's to an interesting experience, huh? I'll drink to that. Today we're discussing Blue Velvet, starring Kyle MacLachlan, Isabella Rosalini, Dennis Hopper, Laura Dern, directed by David Lynch. This is the now playing co-host who's here to put his disease in you, or at least your ear, Arnie. <laughs> Stewart in LA. And this is Jacob from the neighborhood. That's your line. I felt for sure your line would be like, I'm going to fuck anything that moves or something with the F word in it. <laughs> Yeah, don't you fucking look at me. There's going to be so much lurid talk in this podcast. I thought I'd take it easy for the intro. (laughs) (laughs) And thank you for that. Well, congratulations, David Lynch fans. We're back at it. It has been a little bit of time, and hopefully you were fans of John Wick and Resident Evil, but this is a big week. Of course, if you like David Lynch, Resident (laughs) Evil is right there. I think those are peas in a pod. It's a great double feature night. Yeah, I think David wanted to do those movies, but Paul (laughs) W.S. Anderson was like, no, it's my baby. I've got to have complete control. But yeah, this is a big week. I mean, I think that we are covering this week the two big ones. When you say Lynch to me, I immediately think of Blue Velvet and Twin Peaks, two sides of the same coin, really. The the definitive works of what Lynch is and what he does. I have always been a huge fan of Blue Velvet, and I think I saw it exactly as you should, knowing nothing about it, being a very impressionable teenager who was renting everything from my video store that I could get my hands on indiscriminately. Summer school, sure, warlock, absolutely, you know, whatever it is. 
You admit it. You've seen summer school. You always play coy when Arnie references it. <laughs> oh, I saw everything on video in 1987, and I took this box out because, hey, it was nominated for an Oscar. It's supposed to be good. I don't know what it is, and it blew my mind. I had never seen anything like it, and I was so impressed with it. I never watched movies twice, but I was like, Mom, Dad, you got to come watch this movie with me. I want to see it again. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> we made it to the rape scene before they ush they my dad turned into frank booth he's like get out of this fucking room you can't watch this shit and they kept watching while i like spied on them they finished the movie and even though i was like dad i've already seen the movie he's like well you can't watch it again but i did <laughs> i did like sneak and and watch from a distance as they watched the movie. So, yeah, it was just a movie that really struck me at the right time, and I have watched it many times since. I even had a poster of it that I put up in my dorm wall, much to the <laughs> consternation of my roommate, who I think he thought it was a porno film due to the way that the photograph looked, but uh, this is the big one for me. This is David Lynch at his most famous and perhaps his best. Oh, it is a big one for you because let me tell you how I first saw it. Now, I'm not going to tell you how it happened because I'm going to quote a future David Lynch movie. I I don't like to remember things how they happen. I like them how I remember them. And I'm going to describe how I remember first seeing Blue Velvet. But it's my memory. Stuart, you're going to have to tell me if this is exactly right or if my memory is a little off. But I'd not really heard of David Lynch. I'd seen his movies. I'd seen Elephant Man, at least, and Dune. But I didn't know the name until Twin Peaks happened. And we're going to talk about that on Friday. But Stuart, you introduced me to Twin Peaks. And I really loved it. And so you said, you've got to watch Blue Velvet. If you like Twin Peaks, you've got to see this movie. And I came over to your house, which was a rare thing. And you usually came over to mine. I came over to your house and in your basement there, we watched Blue Velvet. And I didn't like the movie. But I think it was because my memory is you were making screaming monkey noises of excitement throughout the whole film and your passion for it was and I was just like, I don't get it. And I'm a little weirded out. And why are you screaming about how good it is? <laughs> I can't explain that because I don't recall this at all. Arnie. I do remember showing it to you and you not being impressed and being disappointed. I didn't understand how someone could love Twin Peaks and not like Blue Velvet. I think I get it now. I mean, one is definitely more entertaining driven than Blue Velvet is, I think, a harder watch because of its violent content. But I didn't think that that would bother you. I Monkey noises? I cannot imagine. But I was a teenager, so who knows who, how I was behaving. It was probably awfully. It, it was really enthusiastic, but... The viewing experience was such, I've never returned to this film, and every time I think of it, I'm like, oh yeah, that movie. Stuart loves it, <laughs> so here I am. Okay. And I think I bring a bit of a unique perspective then, because this is my first time seeing it. Wow! It's, it's been on my radar, but, you know, then we start talking, oh, maybe we'll do David Lynch, and I'm like, I gotta put this stuff off now, in case we do it. So I've wanted to watch it for a while, but I keep putting it off, because we've been talking about this for a couple of years. But, yeah, I knew nothing about this going in. My wife, she's like, oh, yeah, I've seen this. She's like, I watch this all the time, because she had a thing for Kyle MacLachlan at the time. So I guess this is the movie you watch, because why would you want to watch <laughs> Dune? <laughs> I mean, the Flintstones. 
Yeah, if you're into Kyle McLaughlin, at least here you can measure by the inch. Yes, and she, <laughs> like, I knew I was in for something, because usually if the girls are running in and out, even if it's a scary movie, we'll just say, hey, there's blood on the screen, cover your eyes. This, she's like, go in your room, close the door. <laughs> she didn't even want them to hear the audio to this movie. It was like, you are not allowed out of your room while Jacob watches this. And, like, she just kept saying, oh... Here comes the scene. Here comes the scene. Like, freaking out over it. I had no idea what I was getting into, though. Monkey noises? Was she making monkey noise? Maybe it's a thing. No, no monkey noises. She noises a dread and disgust. (laughs) Yeah, okay. My memory coming back to this, all I remembered was Dennis Hopper sucking on some nitrous and Kyle McLaughlin hiding in a closet. That is all I remembered. Yeah. You know, again, I've revisited this movie many times throughout my life. It's even personal. I mean, I'll have to bring in personal stories, but I do feel like going away to college and coming back and watching the movie in the house where I grew up with my mom, again, years later after she ushered me out of her bedroom and said I could never watch this film. Yeah, I mean, I just have a long history with this one. It is what you would expect David Lynch to make now, but I don't think it's what you would expect David Lynch to have made as an encore to Dune. I think that the failure of that movie was so great that you would think he would go to the most commercial, he didn't write it, you know, other people are telling him exactly how it's going. Return of the Jedi, right? Are they making another (laughs) Star Wars? I'll do part four. (laughs) I was guessing he just couldn't get Ronnie Rocket done again. (laughs) He tried, believe me. He sold it to (laughs) Dino De Laurentiis, but funny enough, he did not want to invest in another inscrutable, expensive science fiction David Lynch project. So he owns the rights to it, and it's a big reason why Lynch wasn't able to make it in the 90s when he was doing well and could command bigger budgets, was that it was tied up with Dino's company, which went bankrupt, partially because of Dune. But uh, yeah, it it was optioned, but Lynch knew that he had to work on a small budget. And he had found some producers that had some money, and he was tossing around ideas and, and listening to what he could do. He was also looking at other things. I mean, let it not be said, painter first. He was doing art exhibits. He was actually starting to exhibit his photography, his still work, his still photography work he was putting out there. He was a comic book artist. I don't know if you guys know this, but he was serialized for nine years in LA Weekly with the comic strip, The Angriest Dog in the World. Ever heard of it? I've heard of the strip. I did not know that was Lynch, though. <laughs> yeah. Now, it's, uh, it, I, you know, I kind of equate it to like Life in Hell or Zippy the Pinhead. It's just one of those weird, artsy comic strips. It's not Peanuts, okay? I mean, it's not <laughs> funny. It's, it's, I'm not even sure it was that much work to write because it's four panels, all of the same thing. It's a dog chained up in the backyard of a suburban house. You see behind his fence, there's a smokestack from a factory. And for three panels, it is daylight and the dog is just frozen, growling. And then in the last photo, it's night and he's still growling. So he's just always angry. He's the angriest dog in the world. He never does anything but growl. The only thing that changes from this art week to week are the bubbles that are coming out of the window. Two people are talking. And so, you know, it can sometimes be funny, like or at least maybe David Lynch kind of corny funny. I'll give you an example. One voice says, Pete has a running gag. The second voice in the second panel says, is he a comedian? Third panel, no, he's a runner, but it has almost choked him to death. 
And in the fourth panel, it's night and the dog is growling. And so it's that kind of absurd humor. And then sometimes it was just abstract. Like someone would say, if everything is real, then nothing is real. And, you know, you'd have three panels of nothing, silence, dumbfoundedness. And he got paid for this for nine years until Lynch kind of flamed out after post-Twin Peaks when things weren't cool in his world. He did get canceled, but it was kind of a fun thing to run into a free zine. It was, it was a hipster comic strip. He was also making furniture, believe it or not. Like, he could have gotten out of the whole business. Did he hook up with Jack White to reupholster armchairs? <laughs> I think he would be. I think he probably would do it now. Again, Lynch always strikes me as someone that could step away from film and find something that he loves. But he did, I think, want to remain creative. And he was lucky enough to find some producers that were willing to throw a small amount of money at him this time. That they were not going to give him a doom scientist budget. And I don't think he really wanted to work on that scale again. Keep in mind, Elephant Man and Dune were Hollywood projects where he didn't get to control everything. He missed the days of Eraserhead where he handled every facet of production. And he wanted to have that experience again. And he had worked on Blue Velvet for many years. He had the script done while he was making Dune, he had approached Kyle MacLachlan to star in it already. He already had clear ideas about what he wanted it to be. And fortunately, it was an idea that they could budget for $6 million, which was pretty cheap. Yeah, and I definitely am glad to be going through this Lynch retrospective because here I feel like we're at a nexus. I definitely see some of those eraser head tendencies. But yeah, watching this now, and I didn't get it the first time I saw it, Man, this is like Twin Peaks, the prequel movie. It is so similar. Or the second prequel. Isn't Fire Walk With Me a prequel as well? Oh, yes, yes. The better prequel movie. <laughs> I feel like Lynch always has an idea twice. One for the movies and one for TV. Later, I feel like Lost Highway is uh, the movie version and Mulholland Drive, at least as it was originally conceived, was the TV version of the same idea. So yeah, this is the same idea about a small town in uh, the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, definitely having watched Twin Peaks already, I did get that vibe. I'm like, wow, this is where those ideas started to form. Uh, you, you really see it in this. Yeah, it's seminal. I do think, again, I couldn't imagine liking one and not the other, but I can when I think about it because this is a tough movie <laughs> and it is not uh, something that you would air on television. Even at its darkest, ABC would never air some of the things that we're going to talk about tonight. But I guess we should get into that, Arnie. Give him the plot. And uh, we'll get into Blue Velvet. Kyle McLaughlin plays Jeffrey Beaumont, a college student who's returned home to Lumberton, North Carolina after his father had a stroke. Walking home from the hospital, Jeffrey finds a dismembered, rotting human ear, which he takes to police detective Williams, played by George Dickerson. Later, Jeffrey visits the detective at home to find out about the ear, and there he meets Williams' daughter, Sandy, played by Laura Dern. Sandy tips Jeffrey off about the investigation, and together, the two plan a break-in in the apartment of person of interest and nightclub singer Dorothy Valens, played by Isabella Rosalini. When Dorothy returns home early, Jeffrey is discovered, but made to hide in the closet while Dorothy is visited by her abusive tormentor Frank, played by Dennis Hopper. Frank is a nitrous oxide-inhaling criminal that has kidnapped Dorothy's son and husband, and the ear belonged to her husband. Frank uses their captivity to force Dorothy to be his submissive sex slave. 
This makes Jeffrey want to help Dorothy, and the two begin a passionate affair, with Dorothy pushing Jeffrey a bit to hit her during sex. But simultaneously, Jeffrey is also romancing Sandy, despite her having a boyfriend named Mike, who's a football player. Like in Twin Peaks, Mike. When leaving Dorothy's apartment after a tryst, Jeffrey is found by Frank and his gang. Jeffrey's taken hostage and beaten up, and scared, he takes all of his evidence to Detective Williams and promises to stop his own sleuthing. But while on a date with Sandy, Dorothy shows up naked and beaten, looking to Jeffrey for help. Their affair revealed, Dorothy is taken to the hospital, and she asks Jeffrey to go to her apartment and try to help her husband, who is trapped there. Jeffrey goes and finds that Dorothy's husband, as well as one of Frank's associates, are both dead. Frank then comes and Jeffrey hides in the closet, and when discovered, he takes the associate's gun, using it to shoot and kill Frank. And we see in an ending montage that Jeffrey and Sandy are together and in love, Jeffrey's father is home from the hospital, and Dorothy is reunited with her son as credits roll. You didn't even get into the Robins eating the bugs. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot that we could get into, but I think that was a pretty good job of trying to keep to the plot, which this movie is not necessarily all about. I mean, I think you could tell someone what it's a, what it is about as a story and not even scratch the surface about how you feel when you experience it. All I know is, if you ever ask me what my favorite opening to any movie is, this is on the short list. This is like top three best ways to introduce a movie here. Starting with the blue curtain and that great Hitchcockian score and then, then segueing into one of the greatest montages I've ever seen. Yeah, you go to this idyllic community, the red roses, it's the colors. I mean, it's called blue velvet. I guess we should expect colors to pop in it. But like the red roses and the yellow, whatever those flowers are, the red fire truck. I don't know how Lynch does it, though. Like that fire truck goes by and there's a fireman. It's like perfect 1950s and he's smiling and waving. And it's somehow scary, though, to me, like which <laughs> somehow gets people to smile in ways. I'm thinking about a racer head with the dad where it's unsettling, like it could look like the most perfect Norman Rockwell scene. And there's a dread underlining it. It's the score, I think. I definitely think that the music we're hearing and the way everything fades, it's like it should be a Better Homes and Gardens cover with that white picket fence and the saturated colors, and yet with blue velvet playing. And there's something about certain slow 50s doo-wop that just makes it perfect for a horrific thing. I mean, how many songs have been reappropriated in horror movies like that? But the slow motion and everything, I do think, though, that, Jacob, you might be projecting a little bit because you know this is a Lynch film. It, somebody coming in like Stewart's parents, not knowing what they were in for, might think they were watching Stand By Me or something in these early scenes. <laughs> yeah, it's difficult to know because, yeah, this is a Lynch series and I'm only seeing it through that perspective. But if you had never heard of David Lynch and popped this on, I think you would see nostalgia. You would think Norman Rockwell. You would think classic Americana, which is the childhood that David Lynch had. He moved around a lot. Uh, Montana, Idaho, the state of Washington. He moved around a lot, but he always lived in these nice communities. His father worked for the Department of Agriculture, so it was always important for him to be close to farm communities and the woods and, and what have you. So he did have a childhood where he was always, yeah, 
surrounded by trees and and the communities themselves were idyllic 50s eisenhower exactly what he's presenting here but lynch talked about one of his big ideas when he was thinking about the story was how that if you always looked close enough there was always a bug there was always something underneath the surface and that really is i think the motif that's being stated pretty loudly here is that behind every sunny veneer of of small town life there is something seething and horrifying to behold yeah it comes through in neon signs here i preferred it when it was slightly subtle during this whole montage we cut to we see jeffrey's mom watching some kind of gangster movie somebody is tiptoeing with a pistol in a black and white movie and that just screamed like gangster noir to me and so that's like the first bit of something nasty we see when we get to we're going to really zoom in on the bugs here it's like okay all right well it's play into the back row i love the visuals but yeah it's lacking in subtlety i don't think everything has to be subtle and i think that this is a movie full of strange and difficult to decipher imagery that we have this as the kickoff is great and it's also a storytelling device i mean this is the reason why our main character is going to come back to this world his father is here watering the lawn and we have sort of something done in microcosm that the hose is constricting as the blood vessels are constricting in his neck and he has this stroke and we have another, I'm thinking about a racer head. It's a birth scene, right? This is a birth scene. The way he's yes. holding that hose, when he drops dead, he's holding it like his dick and that water's oh, yeah. shooting up like ejaculate. Yeah, I read this. This is the birth of Jeffrey. This is like how you reintroduce this character. It's wow. Like, yeah, I he's, did not... he's going to get dicks and you, you didn't see a dick. I did not see a dick there. I was too busy laughing at the strange baby coming out of nowhere and the really cute Jack Russell Terrier drinking from that hose, trying to ignore the man who's down and just get a drink. That's why the baby's coming out. This is a birth scene and that, and it's going to be a really dark sexual movie. So I think you do have a dog licking up semen. Yeah. Jacob, feel free to interpret that however you want. I definitely feel like it's there. I mean, the phallic imagery is, Arnie, take another look. I think you'll see it. It's pretty clear the way that he's holding it i watched this movie twice for this review and never did i think about the father's dick just look how he's holding that hose that's that's all we're saying yeah the dog interrupting it what i really see is like this is a story that where parents fail and that is a horrifying moment when you realize that you've reached the age where they're declining and you're stronger than they are and i don't know that i see it so much as a birth but i do see that yeah it's another here was the virile father who has fallen his uh, spray is being interrupted by this dog there's a child coming out to see what is going on and then yeah we dive down below the surface to the ants which we just think is a is a metaphor for unseemliness but these ants are actually going to be crawling on the MacGuffin that's going to kick the plot on later. What's interesting about this is it works both purely as metaphor and setting up the plot of the movie. One thing that I had never seen, though, is that after this montage that I love so much, 
there is a whole subplot that got excised, but can be rediscovered on the 25th anniversary Blu-ray that came out uh, five years ago. This stuff is real surprising. I, I never thought that we would step outside of the small town, but we actually go to college and meet Jeffrey and find out that he is a peeping Tom, that he is actually introduced watching a couple making out at a party. They're actually snuck off to a boiler room and he's watching them, and it gets a little heated. The, the man won't stop. The woman asked him to. It starts to look like sexual assault, and Jeffrey keeps watching. It establishes him as a peeping Tom, as a voyeur, as someone that doesn't mind seeing women in trouble, and he only speaks out and says, you're a shithead, leave her alone, after he hears his name being called because he's getting a phone call from his mom who is ordering him to come home. She is making him leave college for good because they don't have the money to pay for his dad's medical bills and keep him in school. So you get a clearer understanding also of the relationship Jeffrey has with his parents. Uh, his father is sick and his mother is needy. And I think you're going to see that play out with the shadow parents, I'll call it, the parental figures he's going to meet in the story as well. Yeah, I don't know if I would have needed all that. Maybe maybe it's really interesting, but this is, I think, primarily a mystery. I think, Arnie, you, you talked about that detective noir show they're watching on the television, and this does feel like it's got a footstep in that noir genre. So I, I like, you know, when Jeffrey says, am I a is asked if he's a detective or a pervert. I want that mystery. If you see that, I don't know. It, it kind of already tells you what Jeffrey is, and I like going on this journey to discover who he is. Yeah, I do like that he kind of discovers it here for the first time, but in the way that it plays out in the movie, he doesn't know that he's a pervert until he's in that circumstance. By establishing him as that, I don't know. It may change the the character too much. I don't know, but I did miss that detail. I thought it was great as a bonus scene. And not all the bonus scenes are great. Yeah, I did read a little bit about that, and I found it interesting to see him at college, and I did watch that one scene, and I was really surprised to see someone from Will & Grace playing the girlfriend, Megan Mullally. <laughs> I never watched that show, but she's the one that's not Grace, apparently. And um, <laughs> She's Will? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> she's Karen, if that means anything to you. I watched the show for a couple <laughs> seasons. She was actually really good in Why Him just recently. But yeah, I was shocked to see her in this film and looking really young. Yeah, it establishes that he uh, has a girlfriend that is quickly dismissive of him and that throughout the movie, some of the scenes that were cut, the movie was originally, surprise, surprise, four hours long and Dino De Laurentiis ordered Lynch. He was like, I will not release this movie if it is a second over two hours. So he made it one hour and 59 minutes. What I read was literally he cut it to two hours and then removed one frame. <laughs> Yeah, he was going to get in as much as he could, and what gets lost is, yeah, Megan Mullally, these phone conversations throughout where, yes, Jeffrey is calling and seeing, basically learning that she's not interested in, in having a long-distance relationship. Maybe he was never that interested in him at all, and it sort of reinforces his anguish towards women. Yeah, I like the movie the way it plays. I like that we don't leave the town. I like that we're introduced to him walking to see his father i like that the stroke begins everything and we go into the bugs and we're going to talk about it at the end but it's really symmetrical how it ends and if that was how this movie started it would need to end with him back at college for that kind of symmetry 
I don't know if the cuts were because of time or because Lynch saw the poetry in the way the final cut worked, but I like how this movie opens. I like how we see him walking to the hospital and just stopping to throw a rock and establishing, oh, he's going to look in this lot. And then when he visits his dad, does he have a voice box? He's like reaching for a button on his throat. I couldn't, he never speaks. Yeah, I, well, I think it's because he had this stroke and he's not able to speak for medical reasons, but I think he's overcome with emotion as well. I mean, this is a powerful moment in your life. And it happened to me about a year after this film. My dad fell off the roof and he was a fitness buff and an avid runner and he never was able to run again. And I remember the casts and all the surgeries and it is just a humbling moment when someone you look up to is reduced to a hospital bed and they cannot do uh, what they used to do. I mean, I, I can relate to just, they're just seconds of flashes. I wouldn't even call them scenes, but these instances are really powerful to me with Jeffrey trying to be strong for his dad who, yeah, looks like the Baron Harkonnen. He's got some weird like contraption around his head and can't speak. In a cut scene, we learn he actually has a tumor of some kind, that he had a cerebral hemorrhage based on something that they keep calling a disease. And that's a word we're going to talk about later, but that the father is diseased and that is what has brought him home. Yeah, I didn't get power out of that scene. I've also been in the situation where my father was dying and didn't, but he was dying. And I was sitting there like that, seeing him unable to speak for a, from a stroke, coincidentally. You were a man by that point. I mean, I was yeah. still like yeah. a... Yeah, in high school. So it's not not to dismiss that, but I do think that, yeah, when you're young, whenever you see your parents in any way, see them more as human and not as people to look up to, I think it's a startling moment. Right. However, at this point, Kyle MacLachlan's almost 30. So <laughs> I don't think that the trials and tribulations of a young teen equate to that scene. What I get from here is just, again, Lynch's use of sound when we go underground and see those ants after the stroke very eraser head just the sound overpowering and the bugs but done to good effect and with restraint here and when we get there I'm just thinking about some of the other kind of weird scenes that often he does that involve people with various disabilities or various medical contraptions and he is a person who lives and dies with long pauses and furtive glances and silence. And so I took that scene and I got a feeling from it of unease with the contraptions and wondering if he still had a larynx and all that, but I wasn't touched or moved. Well, no, I mean, I... I, I don't think we have a relationship enough to feel for the characters. I'm just talking about how this movie impacted me later when I returned to it and could relate to that moment. But it, it passes very quickly, and we're off to back to the field. Uh, we find out that what he was doing was throwing a rock at a bottle, and as he's digging for more rocks, there becomes the plot device, the severed ear, the moldy, ant-covered appendage. It's that mold on it that gets me. <laughs> I think it's rot. I kept wondering what the green was on it and things, and I think what we're seeing is rotting like gangrenous flesh. 
Mm. And you know, of course, it had to be an ear, right? Like, because Lynch, yeah, because he is such a obsessive over sound design that, like, I mean, it could have been a nose, a finger would have maybe made more sense if it was a mob hit. Yeah, but you could go inside of an ear. I, I, I do feel like Lynch is always pushing the camera inside some hole. So here's something with the hole. Yes. <laughs> but no other body orifices, I want to clarify. Well, I think it can be read that way. I mean, I do feel like this movie is about returning in utero in lots of ways. And you could see when he does those extreme close-ups of the ear canal and those cavernous sounds and all of that. The Freudian, you can definitely interpret it however you'd like. And, of course, David Lynch humor, you've got to love the fact that whenever you're feeling a little too disquieted, he's going to break it up with laughter. And I just love the way that he just finds a spare, you know, brown paper bag, probably from some hooch that somebody left, and just scoops up this ear, walks down to the police detective agency, calls up old Detective Williams, and he confirms, yeah, that's a human ear, all right. Yeah, and it was cut off with scissors, it looks like. like <laughs> he knows. There's something about the humor with this film. And what's funny is there's a old uh, Roger Ebert and, and Gene Siskel clip where they reviewed this film that I watched. And Ebert was disgusted by the humor. How could you have such a dark movie with humor? Like, it, it, it offended him for some reason. But for me, it works. I like dark humor, I guess, though. But, yeah, I'm actually laughing a lot during this film and finding funny things in the grotesque that Lynch is presenting here. Yeah, I think that the humor here is evident. And I'll say, this is the Lynch that I like from the movies that we're going to be discussing. I didn't realize that he had it here, but he's firing on all cylinders after a couple of missteps, with, in my mind, with Eraserhead and Dune and then... Elephant Man being stronger, but still with some issues. But here, we're going to also push the plot forward. We're going to find out, yes, it was severed with scissors. We're being introduced to the detective who's going to be the gateway via his daughter to everything Jeffrey does here. We're not just doing art. We've got story going on. Yeah, there's parallels going on. We're seeing a lot of dialogue and we'll continue to see about parents and children you mentioned this police detective that jeffrey has turned to and yes we'll find out that he is the parent not only is he the man leading the real investigation but he's the parent of the potential new love interest for jeffrey yeah and i feel like for those who might have been turned off by how abstract eraserhead was i feel this is very similar it's eraserhead but with more plot like yeah there's characters and you're going to understand that there's a story here. It's still just as weird, I feel, though. Yeah, well, I mean, I feel like, yeah, Jeffrey's response to a severed ear feels exactly like what Henry would have done if he had found that in the Eraserhead world. I do feel that the main characters, they have a different haircut. It's the 80s, and so Kyle MacLachlan's got a little bit of a spike. He's got, a you know, an earring in his left ear. He's, he's a little bit hip. For the 80s. But for the most part, I would say this movie is just as timeless as Eraserhead. It doesn't feel like it takes place in the 80s or necessarily the 50s. It takes place in some alternate universe that looks like our Earth, but isn't. I mean, my wife asked me why we're watching. She's like, is this supposed to be the 80s or the 50s? And I mean, obviously it's modern times, but they're going to diners that look very 50s. And yeah, it's got this feel like it's not of our world. And I think that's often intentional. Over the years, with all the commentaries I've listened to, so many directors don't want their movies to date. And they also want to evoke a 
little nostalgia as we definitely did in the beginning so they intentionally avoid late model cars they get generic looking vehicles or classic vehicles and the styles yes definitely tinged by the 80s especially that earring but it also does feel he's wearing skinny ties and suits a lot Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's what told me it was the 80s those skinny ties it's the 80s i mean they shot this in summer 1985 in virginia where where they were still shooting maximum overdrive was happening at the same time and I feel like Sandy has a very similar story to Jeffrey. I feel like this is a, a story that gives consideration to characters other than the main character. To me, that's why it feels the most different from Eraserhead, was that was all taking place in the head of one strange dude. And here we have Sandy, who is just a few years behind Jeffrey. She's still in high school, but remembers him, maybe had a crush on him, looked up to him. Ten years younger than Kyle MacLachlan. Yeah, that's weird. I didn't realize Kyle MacLachlan was 30 years old when he shot this. He was actually, it turns out, if it was shot in 85, he was uh, 26. Yeah, okay. Yeah, mid-20s. Yeah, that feels right. But uh, yeah, a bit of an age difference. And as it should be, he is a college guy returning home. And she is still in high school here, perhaps 17. Perhaps this is criminal. Yeah, I I was wondering if this was high school or was she going to like a junior college? No, no. She's definitely in high school. Okay. She was a high school senior, definitely, with the football team and everything there. But... I knew some high school seniors who, once they turned 18, were dating 40-year-olds. I thought it was creepy, but it's what they did. As for Laura Dern, I kind of talked about her a bit when we did Jurassic Park, but she's an actress I've never quite clicked with. I just, she's there, she's fine. Here, I found her performance really interesting. Because I have seen Lost Highway so many times and Twin Peaks, the entire series, so many times. Her hushed voice delivery, her long pauses. I'm wondering how much Lynch actually gives line deliveries to actors or really influences their performance. Because here, she's playing just like Patricia Arquette or just like Laura Flynn Boyle. Well, it's hard to know. I mean, it could be that when you get cast in a Lynch film now, you know what's expected of you because you've seen the earlier ones. But keep in mind, I I don't think anyone was was going back to a racer head. I think Kyle McLaughlin said that he went and saw that to get his audition to Dune and was like, "Ugh, I don't even understand this. I mean, I don't think people really had a good sense about what David Lynch wanted from his actors when he was making Blue Velvet. I think they respond to his enthusiasm. He's very excitable. I don't think he gives line readings. I think he's just very encouraging. He wants them to dig in. He encourages ad-libbing. He wants them to find the character. And I think he connected to Laura right away, that she was the daughters of Hollywood actors. Bruce Dern and Diane Ladd, that Hollywood royalty. We're going to see a few people like that in this cast here. She was in a movie very much like Elephant Man called Mask. where Mm -hmm. She was the girlfriend to deformed Eric Stoltz. Uh, That's why she got this part over Molly Ringwald, that Molly Ringwald's mother wouldn't let her do it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's no nudity in that part. I will call out Laura Dern for one thing that she does, and just in case we don't talk about it later, when she finds out about Jeffrey's affair, what she does with her lips 
is strangely animated and they bend and contort in ways I didn't know human lips could. So I'll give her that. Her face acting in the scene where <laughs> with naked Dorothy, I couldn't take my eyes off Laura Dern's lips. Yeah, uh, Laura Dern, I, I she works in Lynch projects. I mean, we'll see her many times. She's in the new season of Twin Peaks. Inland Empire, man, they, if you're impressed with her face here, they get some really amazing looks out of her in that movie and Wild at Heart, of course. Uh, she's definitely one of his collaborators here. And this is, a, I think, a very successful first collaboration. She's very young here. I think she's only 19. She would be 18 or 17 when this was filmed. Yeah. I, I was only just a few years younger watching it. So I can't imagine coming into this, even with my parents being movie stars and knowing what to expect. This kind of subject matter. I guess you're right. She gets the innocent part. I love the way she's introduced. Absolutely loved it. In the cut scenes, originally it was just planned that Jeffrey would be hanging out at the Williams residence and she and Mike walked by and they were on their way out the door and you established her as someone dating a jock. But here, the way it's done is that Jeffrey has just had a meeting with Detective Williams. He's told him, look, I'm not going to tell you anything about the case until it's wrapped up. And he steps out and, and we're reminded of that billowing blue velvet opening where that curtain was kind of shimmering. She steps out of the willows and it's, yeah, it's like a 50s movie. I mean, it's, they don't make movies where people are lit in this way in the 80s. Yeah, I feel like with her, if McLaughlin's all 80s with skinny ties, I do feel like they keep her very 50s. Mm -hmm. Sandra D. I'm almost expecting her to come out with a poodle skirt mm -hmm. at times. Like, she's got those sweaters. She's always got a skirt on. Yeah, they. I do think it's intentional that dualism's a big thing in this film. And, yeah, she's the innocent blonde girlfriend compared to the exotic brunette we'll meet eventually. Yeah, I mean, again, I'm going back. I'll put this in Twin Peaks terms, but it's basically the Black Lodge and the White Lodge. There's the good woman and the bad woman. The veneer on top that we've seen that's idyllic and then the dirt underneath and this guy getting caught pulled between the two forces the two impulses yeah i definitely think that you're going to see sandy as the most optimistic of the females that are presented here but i don't feel like she's completely innocent i think that she has the same curiosity that jeffrey does she lives above her father's office she spies on him and so she kind of knows what's going on in town that there's these drug dealers and this nightclub singer and she can take Jeffrey to the apartment and show him she's just as curious as he is about what's going on in their small little world and what happens when you step off the beaten path and go past Lincoln Street I love the way that that's set up we have this goofy old character named Aunt Barbara who gets a whole lot more in the deleted scenes she's always trying to find termites that are infesting the house and that guy completely cut out but she makes the comment as Jeffrey was stepping out of the house you're not going down to Lincoln Street are you and you know once we finally see that the nightclub singer's house is right there on Lincoln Street it makes us wonder what do the other residents know is this a whole secret that the town is keeping yeah, for all of Sandy's clean-cut image, she is the one that I feel pushes Jeffrey to investigate this. She's like, yeah, there's this woman in this apartment, and it's on the seventh floor. Like, gives very specific instructions where everything can be found. Like, she does push him in the right direction. Mm -hmm. It is kind of her fault. Living in Springfield, Illinois, when I saw that this was Lincoln Street and that the bad guy's name is Booth, I'm like, okay, there's something <laughs> there. Yeah. 
I'm not sure what, but yes, it's something. (laughs) (laughs) It can't be coincidence. There's too much of a close-up on that Lincoln Street sign and this ominous music sting. And then, yeah, we're going to be dealing with Frank Booth for the rest of the film. He's going to get shot in the head. I don't know. I just want to take a moment. I think this is the moment where I most want to compliment Frederick Elms, the cinematographer, who is shooting in a very wide anamorphic frame. Like, in most versions of this movie's commercial home video release, you can't even see the total image because it's that wide, and they've had to crop it to some degree. And just this moment when they're tracking through their neighborhood, and we see the shots of the trees, and they just look like babes in the woods. They just look like kids that, you know, he's doing this weird chicken walk and trying to impress her. What the fuck is that chicken walk? (laughs) An ad lib by Kyle MacLachlan. Go back to your racer head. Yeah, those dancing chickens made an impression on him. (laughs) Not scripted. It was just something Kyle MacLachlan knew how to do. And Lynch responds to that. There are many things in this movie where Lynch was like, yeah, do that. Uh, You know, he is very open to spontaneous inspiration. I found the chicken walk amusing, but if you're trying to woo a girl, I don't know that that's the way. It is in this world, though, where, again, we're just seeing strangeness all over. There's a blind man walking a dog, but he's just kind of frozen on the side. And there's another blind guy that just knows how many fingers you're holding up. Well, you saw how (laughs) they did that, right? It took me my second viewing to really catch it. But the other guy behind him is tapping him on the shoulder the number of times for fingers. Oh, so it was a trick. Yeah. It's double Ed. They're both named Ed. One is sight impaired. It's an obvious ruse. The fact that Jeffrey hasn't figured it out tells me that Jeffrey is a very naive detective. He's going to have a lot of problems figuring out this case. You think he didn't figure it out? I thought he was humoring the man. Maybe, yeah, I don't know. But it's hard to know in a Lynch world. People are smiling and it's hard to know whether it's ironically or whether they genuinely are fooled. Again, this is a man that just did a chicken walk to impress a girl. I don't know what Jeffrey knows. He's also calling his girlfriend back college and not getting the message that she's really breaking up with him these are being interspersed here but he's got a plan well that those are cut scenes to clarify yeah yeah those aren't in the actual film right but he's got a plan he wants to to break into the nightclub singer's apartment and see what he can find and that really was the inspiration lynch talks about how he started even working on Blue Velvet, he was approached by a producer while he was making Elephant Man and said, I really want to tell a story where a guy sneaks into a woman's room and, and spies on her through a closet and sees something that's going to lead into a mystery. And that got a green light. He was paid to, to write a treatment and it was shopped around at Warner Brothers and it looked like it could have been his film after Elephant Man until they read the script and said, this sucks. And Lynch took several more years to to finesse it into the version we have now. But the idea of spying on someone in their home when they don't know that they're there, it's his fantasy. I mean, I think that Lynch is Jeffrey here and that enthusiasm that he has, the way that he's pressuring Sandy to do it with him, it almost feels like, uh, like he's pressuring her for sex or something. It's like, come on, it'll be fun. Aren't you curious? It won't hurt. And... I took this a little bit differently. I remember being a young person and (laughs) feeling that adults didn't know shit. And we had our own drug-busting detective agency when (laughs) we were... I was wondering if you were going to bring up the detective (laughs) agency we had for about three days. Yeah. But I remember wanting that investigative 
thing. And again, we're going to see this exact same dynamic play out in Twin Peaks. I watched Twin Peaks when I was the right age to be these characters, and I just went with it. Yes, teenagers investigate because they don't trust the cops to do what they need to do. So I definitely went there. I may have even been the Kyle McLaughlin trying to get a few people to help me out with some of my crazy plans to investigate evildoers in my youth. What's crazy about this scheme, so Jeffrey's going to pose as an exterminator at this apartment complex and get into the apartment, and then Sandy's supposed to come up later and act like a Jehovah Witness to distract Dorothy. Okay, when I was a kid, I was visiting my cousin, and my great-grandma lived in that same little town that he lived in, and she's known to have all these Christmas presents in her closet that she forgot about. We came up with this idea because she was legally blind. My cousin <laughs> acted like an exterminator said, oh yeah, you you scheduled us and went in there, and then he said, you come later and pretend to be a Mormon missionary <laughs> To keep her at the front door. This blew my mind that like to see this scheme. Wow. Maybe uh, maybe this is a scheme that lots of kids think of. It would have yes. never occurred to me that this was the way to get information about the nightclub singer that's maybe or maybe not mixed up in the severed ear. But you have to wonder, is Jeffrey really doing it because he wants to solve that case? Or is it that when he finally gets a look at her that he's smitten? I don't know. We're going to see a lot of contrasting with Jeffrey and her tormentor, Frank. And this is it starts right here where, like, Jeffrey is carrying a tank, the exterminator bug spray. It's going to be in contrast to the tank that Frank carries around and huffs on. I, I do feel like they'll be dressed similarly and we're to think of them in similar ways as the story progresses. But here he still seems innocent. He's just, yeah, playing bug man and uh, gets a clue. Uh, not the one that he thought, but instead of Sandy making it to the door, there is a man in a yellow sports coat. And uh, he is going to see that figure throughout the investigation. And I got to say, Dorothy's apartment is really nice for the building she lives in. Yeah, I was thinking that same thing. <laughs> He's walking into what looks like the projects. The elevator's literally boarded up. He has to climb seven flights of stairs. And to get to the stairs, he's got to walk through the dump where they have like eight metal garbage cans or something. I figured he was walking into a dive when he walks in and everything is like the interior decorators on point with all the mauve and purple and everything going on in that living room. And mm -hmm. the kitchen's a little bit out of time with its appliances, but that is one nice apartment in one shitty building. Yeah, and it's uh, very erotic, for lack of a better reason as well. It's pink, it's fleshy, like the hallway is all tones of gray, and then suddenly we're just in this world, and, and there is this woman, and what to make of her. He looks around, he sees a little bit, but he knows he wants to come back, and he steals a set of keys, and he's confident that they can sneak in while she's performing at the nightclub, and convinces Sandy to change her plan. She was supposed to go out with her boyfriend, play sick, and come with me to the slow club. Yeah. I think Jeffrey definitely has designs on Sandy from the first. I think there it's clearly like love at first sight because when he finds out she has a date that night, he's like, well, that takes care of that. I mean, he's definitely hurt that she has a bow. 
And yet, I feel like they are both excited about the case. I mean, it's it's hard to know where their interest in the case and each other begins and ends. I think it's both. But I think that what has brought them together, and, and it's the secret that they have that no one else can have. She can't go and talk to Mike about severed ears and all of this. She can't talk to her dad about it because she's not supposed to be doing this kind of dangerous work. But here's the one guy that she can tell secrets to. And that is kind of sexy when you have someone in your life that you can share something and Nobody else can know that. Uh, that's an erotic thing. Yeah, I mean, later on, there, there's going to be a point where he's like, in five minutes, your mind's going to be totally blown by what I tell you. It, it does almost seem like, yeah, a, a sexual titillation that he's getting all these secrets and then sharing it with her. Yeah, there's definitely just the thrill of doing something illicit, too, that they conspired together to break into an apartment like that. It gets the adrenaline rushing and everything, and... It just makes something more fun when you're not supposed to do it. Yeah, I agree. And I think that, again, it's fun for her to break a date and tell lies to her father and her boyfriend and go to a grown-up place. And she's obviously never even impersonated an adult before, that she's having to act like she's... 21 and drinking beer here at the bar she's only snuck it off from her father she's only had her dad's beer now she's getting to try heineken did heineken know they were gonna show a lot of heineken in this film <laughs> i don't know that nothing was said about whether there was product placement or agreement i think the reason why it was chosen was it's a very modern hip 80s beer at that time and so it's a youthful choice it is something that a college freshman would be drinking and i read some interviews with Stephen King from the 80s where he would pick his beer types to quickly identify a character. We're going to find Frank Lex Pabst Blue Ribbon. That tells me something. Mm, that is a character trait. PBR is the first beer I ever had and probably <laughs> the reason why I don't like beer that much. <laughs> PBR was the beer that we drank in college when we had just finished a kegger and had no money left <laughs> and we literally put our coins together and somebody went and what could they afford Pabst Blue Ribbon. Eesh. And then the detective, he drinks Bud. You know, that's an all-American Bud. So I'm not a beer drinker, so a lot of this, yeah, I, I, it was funny, like the Pabst Blue Ribbon line. I didn't get what it quite meant, though. I guess I got to take up drinking. I do like those kinds of details, that nuance, that work that's being done here. Not a lot is being told in the case. I mean, you could say this movie is slow moving, but I am finding it completely entrancing because of all of the things we're studying and seeing here. That said, I am grateful to the editor. There was a lot of cut scenes here at the bar with opening acts. The slow club was even slower. Oh, yeah. Like it took forever for Dorothy to come on. There was a really terrible opening band and uh, some bits with the waiter. It just, it really went on for about five minutes and it, every second of it needed to go. But eventually we are introduced to, yes, the blue lady, Isabella Rossellini, who up to that point had only been in one film, White Nights and was more known as a model than really as an actress. I saw White Knights in theaters, so I guess I'd seen her debut. <laughs> I mean, we've seen her in the apartment, but when we see her on stage, first of all, I'm going to keep doing this because we're going to have so much to discuss in Twin Peaks that I don't want to have to pull all the Blue Velvet references out, so I'm going to do these all retroactively. She's standing in front of the red curtain there. That's going to be a big symbol. Yeah, when I saw this slow club, I'm like, oh, okay, so this is where Twin Peaks came from. Here's the Black Lodge. Well, the flooring is from Eraserhead of the Black Lodge, but we got the red curtain here. She's singing into that old-timey mic, and I'm, I'm going to have to revisit it, but I think, like, in the 
series finale or season two finale of Twin Peaks. There's a singer singing into that. Of course, there's all the Julie Cruz stuff that's in there. And Angelo Badalamenti. Man, I love him. I really love his music. I love when he can take these songs and orchestrate them in a way that becomes really eerie. So here we have this remake of the 50 song Blue Velvet being sung by Isabella Rosalini and it's slow and she's bathed in blue light. It's already got an eerie vibe but then when the two, I'll call them youths, leave the club it goes into that kind of eerie score that just haunts and hangs on. It's really good. And the funny thing is Angela was not hired to do the score for this movie. He was hired to get Isabella Rossellini to sing on key, which is not an easy task. <laughs> He's not entirely successful, I want to say. They didn't have auto-tune then. <laughs> she fully admitted she was terrified of taking this role, not because of the nudity, not because of the torture, but because she was. they were not going to dub her with somebody else. Her natural voice was going to have to carry a tune, and she knew she couldn't sing. And so she basically needed Angelo to create an arrangement that she could could sing within. He created the version that allowed her to look the best. So I always found like this slightly painful. She's no Julie Cruz. I'll just leave it at that. But she gets through the song, and it certainly has an exotic atmosphere. You can see why she would be entrancing to so many. But yeah, Angelo is a big component about why Lynch is able to captivate, what he is able to do in future projects, and here in Blue Velvet, where he's working with so many different styles of music, jazz, rockabilly, shoegazer, 80s pop. He's successful in bringing all of these disparate elements in and is as much a character as anyone else. And we've talked about Lynch's transcendental meditation. I do feel like, yeah, this is a slow movie. It's no wonder it's at the slow club, but that arrangement, the way Rosalini is singing it, I'm entranced. I do feel like I'm in a meditative state. And as slow as this is moving, I'm just taking it all in and fascinated by it. Agreed. This is really captivating me. I think the score has a lot to do with it. The mood, though, and the fact that we are dealing with a mystery. I am hooked by what is going on. I had no memory of this plot with the ear coming in. So I was really anxious to see where it goes. When he goes back, breaks in, he's very lucky. Those were the keys to the apartment, not the keys to a locker or something, the way they were just hanging and the way they looked. And he gets in and He's not there too long before he has to take a piss. I thought that was going to be the tell. I thought she was going to find urine on the seat or he'd leave the seat up or something. But no, it's the flushing that means he doesn't hear the horn honk. It's the loudest toilet in the world. <laughs> yeah, he's caught by surprise. In the original draft of the script, I did read uh, the draft that was close to what they filmed, but had some differences. It was his plan to stay in the closet. He immediately went in the closet and he was going to spy on her all night. I didn't get that impression from the movie, though. My sense was that he was in here just to go through her drawers, just to see what she was like, and that he would have probably snuck out of here five, ten minutes later. If he had heard that honk, he would have left the apartment. He wouldn't have run into the closet. When he starts sniffing her perfume, I suddenly think he's not there to investigate a crime, and he's there for like a panty raid type purpose or something. It becomes odd. He's not looking for guns. He's not looking for blood or evidence or drugs. He's looking at her toiletries. 
Yeah, and maybe this is a discovery for him. I mean, he keeps saying he's he's hooked on the mystery, but maybe the mystery is himself. Like, I didn't realize I could be so turned on by this, that, that this is exciting to me. I mean, yeah, he likes Sandy, and he'll call her mysterious later as some form of flattery, but I don't think that her allure is mysterious to him. I think that what is mysterious is this dark exotic foreign mother figure. And Isabella Rossellini, I don't think she's a great actress. I definitely don't think she's a great singer, but I do think that she brings the right mood. Part of it is that she's old Hollywood too. Like her mother is Ingrid Bergman and she looks just like her. And that's basically why David Lynch got smitten. I don't know if there is a connection or not, but David Lynch did get divorced from his second wife the summer that he shot Blue Velvet and quickly started having an affair with Isabella Rossellini right afterwards. So I think that Jeffrey's attraction matches Lynch's attraction to Isabella. Now, I didn't notice any problems with Isabella's singing. Her talking, on the other hand, a couple <laughs> of times made me want to turn on the subtitles. I never did. I kind of got the gist, but... When I'm trying to pay attention and hang on every word, she made it a little hard. Yeah, she's Italian, and uh, Lynch wanted a foreigner. He also looked at a German actress. At one point, he was shown Debbie Harry. as That was the compromise about, how about get Blondie in here? I think that would have been a very different vibe. I'm Not to say that Debbie Harry couldn't have done it, but I'm kind of glad that they went with a foreign... Yeah, there's just something not of a small-town America about her. She would never be here. And so why wouldn't that be alluring to a small-town kid? You know... To talk about that point, the whole metaphor we got at the very beginning is underneath the pretty veneer of suburbia is evil and bugs and nastiness, right? But I would go with that more if this was like a desperate housewives type of situation and he was breaking into a modern home with a white picket fence by going to this apartment building that everybody knows to stay away from that street I mean, it's like he crossed the tracks to the bad side of town. It's, I don't know that it fits with underneath this veneer is ugliness because he's in an ugly place. Well, it's the same town, though, Arnie. I mean, I, the point is that he's only known his town to be white picket fences, and now he's learning there's just so much more. And hey, I kind of like it. Yeah, he's gone to that other side of the tracks that he's always been warned against, or the other side of Lincoln Street, at least. I do feel like Lynch plays with that, though. I mean, you have this ugly apartment building, but yeah, she has this weird Art Deco apartment that looks like it could use a new coat of paint, but at one time it looked really nice. I, I do feel like Lynch does deal with those extremes, though, like black and white. Like At what, one point, Jeffrey's going to literally be just wearing black with a stripe of white like to drive the point home. It, for all the weirdness and surrealism sometimes yeah he he just goes for the obvious yeah and i think one thing that becomes very clear here is that dorothy represents a mother figure we'll see her return home jeffrey is hiding in the closet she gets a phone call that saves him from being discovered right away and she's talking to well a couple different people there's frank 
There is someone named Dawn, and it sounds like she's talking to a child as well. We'll eventually learn that she is a mother who's both her husband and her son, both named Dawn, are being held captive by Frank, and that all the things that she's doing is because she loves her child. When I saw this on the second viewing, I wondered when she said mommy's here if she was talking to Frank or to her child, though. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it gets real weird when you find out what Frank's going to do. Yeah, well, I I definitely feel like weird is where Lynch is at his best, and that is what we're going to see here. Well, first, it should be said, Jeffrey gets outed as a pervert, as he should. Yeah, I love in movies. It usually happens in comedies, and so I don't think about it. When you're in this really suspenseful situation, maybe you guys do this and I'm the weird one, but who goes to a closet, reaches in without looking, and absolutely grabs the exact garment they were looking for? I'm always rooting through hangers and moving stuff to the side if I'm trying to look for a specific shirt or something. But she goes there, he thinks he's going to be caught. No, oh, here's my blue velvet robe. Yeah, well, I think that this is ritual, where what she's going to do is something that she's done dozens, maybe hundreds of times. Who knows how long this has been going on, but she knows exactly what's about to go down with Frank calling. He's on his way, and she's going to have to be his object of desire. And so I think she'd know where that blue velvet dress is, and reaching in there as second nature. I could see how she might miss a strange man hiding in her closet. However, she does have good ears, and she can hear him, and I love the fact that she tries tries to pretend like she doesn't know that he's in there until she just casually goes to the kitchen, gets the knife, and then orders him out and into as a payback. You like looking at me taking off my clothes? You take off your clothes. Yeah, they do a a, a switcheroo here. Usually it's, it's a guy sexually assaulting one. No, here she's got him at knife point. Take your clothes off. I'm going to have my way with you. And I get the feeling he wants that to happen because... There's several times he could escape the distance of that blade. A woman got a knife in her hand, though. I don't know if I want to undress. Yeah, and when she is down on her knees and he's standing up, he could bolt for the door. I think he's into it. Yeah, no, I I mean, I definitely feel like he's discovering something about himself as well as discovering something sorted about this relationship. But yes, there's who isn't thinking about edible complexes and castration issues with this yeah, mother figure that's demanding that he take off his clothes, lie down, and she gets on top with a knife. That is some bold stuff here. But Frank does arrive. He's ordered back into the closet, and he is going to watch something that he really shouldn't. Yeah, this this is the scene where my wife started freaking out, and then she's like, oh gosh, here it is. Dennis Hopper, not the original choice for this. I think they looked at several different people. I know that the villain from Rambo was approached. Steve Burkoff. Oh, yeah, he was the Russian in First Blood Part 2 and the bad guy in Beverly Hills Cop. But a surprise, when I attended the David Lynch Festival a few months ago, something that I've never seen reported before got announced, one of the guest speakers was John Malkovich, and he revealed that Lynch wanted him to do the part and that he decided for whatever reason uh, he didn't want to do it. But I could see that. I mean, Malkovich has definitely played a lot of weirdos, sickos. At that time in his career, he was only known basically as a stage performer. He was making a name for himself at the Steppenwolf Theater in Chicago. But that would have been quite an introduction. But I don't know. Dennis Hopper is 
an icon. You know, at this point, he is washed up icon, but easy rider, the 60s relic, the drug addict that survived it all, and who had recently gotten sober in real life. He was sober for this film? Oh, yes. This was uh, his big comeback. He had really washed out. I think it was My Science Project that was like <laughs> the last film where he was just like, I got to get my act clean. What about Texas Chainsaw 2? He seemed pretty out of it in that, too. Yeah, I'm not sure if he was sober or not, because all of that was made around the same time as Blue Velvet and Hoosiers and River's Edge. But Hopper said he was very afraid of getting sober, in part because he was afraid it would hurt his work, that he had, you know, learned to act by being out of control and drinking and all of that. And so would he be good if he stopped using the drugs? 86 was a real comeback year for him. He got an Oscar nomination for Hoosiers. He got a lot of praise for all the films that he made, except for Texas Chainsaw 2, I think, which I loved him in. I mean, I, I wasn't a great movie, but he was certainly kind of like this, a, a wild man out of control that was fun to watch. And I do feel like other people could have played Frank Booth, but nobody would have played Frank Booth the way that Dennis Hopper plays him. Yeah, Dennis Hopper... Again, listening to Julie Cruz as much as I did, his line, now it's dark, he repeats it many times, but I was taken back to the opening of Into the Night, Julie Cruz song there, and whenever he says that, it the movie does get dark, both literally and figuratively. I can't even figure out what his plot is. At this point, the movie's plot becomes more about survival and escape and less about that ear, because, like you said, we don't know how long he's had the husband and child locked up. After this scene, he's going to say, stay alive, do it for Van Gogh, obviously meaning whoever's ear he cut off, which we'll find out to be her husband. But what is he? What does he want? What is he doing? Why did he kidnap the husband for Dorothy? And I never really asked those questions like, what's going on with the father? What's the relationship like with Jeffrey and his dad? What What's going on with... Frank here like why why is he sniffing gas like for me I don't know if that's what you do with Lynch he he presents things and you got to go to another place for it so I, I don't get caught up in those this is the personification of evil I guess if we have the dark and the light like this is a bad guy and Lynch has just made this bad guy really weird like weirder than Harkonnen was in Dune like <laughs> sniffing that gas I don't know what he was doing with those scissors down with Dorothy there but yeah it, it's real dark and real weird and I just I just I take it at that value about the gas that is something that Hopper was proud about that Lynch wrote it in the original script that this was a character that simply huffed helium which doesn't get you high it just changes the quality of your voice <laughs> that would have been really funny with the voice I would have loved that could you imagine being raped by Alvin and the chipmunks well, that was the point, is that he comes in saying, call me daddy, shithead, and then would turn into the baby. So when he was in that, when he was in that infantile state, he would have that high-pitched, shrill voice. But Hopper was like, nah, 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 nah. If you're going to sniff something, it'll be amyl nitrate, it'll be nitrous. And David Lynch was like, oh, I'm so glad that you know all this. So it was changed 
But uh, I don't know. It would have been interesting. To, I think it would have been too funny. I think that the it would have played too much like comedy if his voice changed with helium. But it might. Who knows? Lynch could have made that work. I mean, I feel like the way the movie is right now, like, baby wants to fuck mommy. Like, I thought, is he going to try to, like, crawl up into her vagina there? And that's, like, his oxygen tank, like, and be given birth? Like, yeah, there is so much weird Freudian sexual stuff going on here. He does not penetrate her. He does not remove his clothes. He does not open his belt buckle. I do think he penetrates her. He's shoving something between her legs. His hand. I'm sorry. Yes. He, he uses, he, he maybe fists her, but he does not take out his member and sodomize her. Yeah. I was scared. He had some scissors. He was cutting stuff with. I'm like, is he shoving scissors up there? But I see no blood and she's ready to have sex with Jeffrey right after that. So I'm guessing she's not wounded, but yeah, there's something violent going on. And every time she looks at him, he punches her really hard. I'm like, I think this is a more realistic version of 50 shades of gray going on here. And to me, this is where subtext has become overt that uh, normally in a thriller, like a Hitchcock movie, these are kinds of things that French critics would write about and point out later that nobody would see. And Lynch He's very Hitchcockian in the way he's constructed this thriller, but he wants to make sure everybody sees the subtext here. That we have mommy and daddy, and that if Jeffrey is a boy trying to become a man, we have Frank, the man, the father, that wants to revert. And yes, I don't know about crawl back inside mommy, but definitely use her as a fetishistic object to regress. And that is sort of what's going on here. It is the battle of wills. And what I respond to this movie always is the way that it challenges that notion of when you start to switch roles with your parents and how awkward that feels. And that fight when you realize you're becoming more like them and you don't want them. I'm not going to say that I have, you know, these kinds of lurid fantasies that we're seeing played out here. This is psychodrama. This is Lynch being taking it to an extreme in a graphic, violent way. But I do feel like it's very relatable to me watching the father figures tormenting the child. And what tells me that Jeffrey... I don't know if it means he's a man or isn't a man yet, but once Frank leaves and... Dorothy engages with him again. She wants to be hit and he will not hit her. That 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 is something he is not ready to engage in. He he wants to have sex with her, but he won't partake of that violence. Frank and Dorothy are not dissimilar to what his own parents are doing to him. One is just sick in the head and the other demands that he comes home, that he gives up his adult life and returns to her. And I think you'd get that more, that theme would come more clearly if we had some of those deleted scenes. But that's what I'm seeing here is that Jeffrey is dealing in this dark realm and this other side with what he's dealing with on the happy side of the tracks, that this is psychodrama. And yeah, there is a part of him that would like to be his father, that, is, that does feel disease, that does enjoy being lurid, but still he wants to be the hero. He wants to be the guy that saves Dorothy from these bad men. And so we see this push and pull throughout all these scenes, which has been truncated. This was another scene that was a lot was cut out of this. At one point, we realize that Frank has severed Don's other ear and left it for her in the sink, and she flushes it. And at one point, she also runs upstairs to jump off the roof. She wants to kill herself. In fact, in the original version of the script, she does kill herself at the end. And uh, Jeffrey pulls her back, and that's when they have sex. 
I never saw her as a mother figure. I just, I didn't read that Freudian into it, but I can see it now. And now I'm seeing this as the most violent remake of The Graduate ever. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I think those themes are here. And those are the themes that I respond to. I like the movie The Graduate, but this movie gets me. And it really just, there's something about it. Because it is about a suburban town that feels familiar to me. I think Poltergeist, in a weird way, worked the same way. And the reason why both these movies are some of my favorites because they seem to teach something about my world to me that I wouldn't have seen otherwise. That they take a place that feels very familiar and does something fantastical with them. And that's, yeah, I just, I really do respond to it. That said, I'm going to just put it out here now. I have always felt like this movie peaked with this scene. I have always found the first half of Blue Velvet to be a perfect film. And the second half... It struggles because it has to wrap up the plot and make sense and do the things that Lynch is not as talented in doing. I disagree. I think that this is where the movie kicks into high gear for me. I think that what's coming up a little bit later is every bit as good as the scene. I think whenever Dennis Hopper's on screen, the movie goes to a new level that it's not at when he's not here. You said he was nominated for an Oscar for Hoosiers. I think he deserved a nod for this as well, or instead. He's my least favorite character. I, I, I guess it comes as a surprise. I think it's because he's the one that just feels the least dimensional. Like, he's so over the top to me. I can't relate to him. I really tried this time. I tried to think... What does Frank want out of Dorothy? Is he just evil incarnate or is there something about him? I see that he wants to regress with her or that can can use her and fetishize her in a way that allows him to be a child again and maybe that's what he wants. But someone in one of the bonus features I watched just explained it to me. The best I can understand it is he's in love with her. He deeply loves this woman and he doesn't know how to express it because he's a violent gangster and doesn't have, he didn't have the right parents. And so this is his way of showing devotion, I guess. I didn't get that. I got kind of an ownership thing, you know, rape isn't about sex, it's about violence. I kind of just saw this as controlling. Again, I used an S&M reference earlier. I see some of that here, but I'm not trying to connect with him. I do see him as an agent of chaos. And because I can't get a specific handle on his motivations, that excites me even more. The fact that when he comes in, all rules go away. Whatever game Jeffrey thinks he's playing and however Jeffrey thinks he's in control of it, it's all gone when Frank shows up. That's what I like about him. I'll say this about the plot. I feel like, okay, this is a weird Lynch detective story, you know, instead of a, a missing, I don't know, diamond, you have a ear that's found in a field. But, oh, okay, it's kind of standard until it goes into the extreme bizarre. And, yeah, Arnie, what you're saying, this agent of chaos, Frank, I, now I don't know what to expect with this guy after such a weird fetishized edible sex scene. I don't know what to make of this or, or where it's going to go now. And so, yeah, I don't feel like it's peaked. I, I feel like, okay, now we're really going somewhere here. Yeah, if this was a Twin Peaks episode, I would just say he's possessed by Bob and move on with it. And here, we're not that far off. We keep seeing candles burn out and flames and things. I feel like there's 
demons just under the surface here and frank is an embodiment yeah and in some of those hallucinations these are uh, visions that jeffrey has had is having when he's walking home we see the face of his father as well that is transposed over frank snarling over the mother so they're really trying to get you to draw those parallels between jeffrey's actual father and this twisted relationship going on between frank and dorothy that was a strange shot and i just i knew it was the father but it was so distorted it almost was like he was you know that reflection you get when you're on a chrome toaster that's really bent or something i couldn't i didn't see frank in it but i did only watch this twice as if i'd seen it as often as you have i might have seen all the details and despite not getting a lot about Jeffrey's parents in this film, I do feel like I still understand that Frank and these relationships are supposed to be the opposite of light. Because, yeah, we started off with that idyllic suburban neighborhood. We have an idea of what like a normal relationship is supposed to be, a normal family. And here is what we're seeing. I do feel like with Jeffrey being of college age, this is a discovery that, yeah, you make as you grow older. Like as a kid, you think things are pretty normal. And then you start growing up and you start hearing stories and and yeah you realize you're in a much stranger world than you were you thought you were brought up in yeah and he does want to return i think what he loves about sandy is that she is that normalcy he can return to and she gets it she wants to know about it and yet she grounds him she allows him to still feel like he's the good guy trying to crack the case and not the pervert you know, he's not telling her that he's having sex with Dorothy, but he is telling her the other details about Frank and what's going on. And she has this very strange response to it. You know, she's like, yeah, I had a dream where birds, <laughs> robins came down and, and changed a world of darkness into light. And to Jeffrey, that makes all the sense in the world. He's just like, you're a neat girl. You know, here's this thing about David Lynch is that, you know, sometimes when he does show the forces of good triumphing over the forces of perversion, I sometimes wonder if it's with tongue in cheek. The way that she's delivering that feels to me like almost like a mocking of salvation and not an actual salvation. And don't forget, there is a church in the background with like church organ music mm -hmm. playing. It does feel so over the top. They're laying it on thick and so thick that you can't believe that Lynch would be serious about it. And again, is he mocking or is he just celebrating good old Americana? Difficult to say. Yeah, that's the line I was writing. My belief is that he's not necessarily mocking. My reading of this is if you're going to have demonic force of Frank in this movie, you have to have an equal force of light and you have to have Jeffrey pulled between these two. And so I think that we may find it to be slightly cheesy the way it is laid on so thick, but I do think that this is supposed to be in earnest as well. The way this movie ends, it's strange. I don't think of happy endings with Lynch, really. <laughs> and so that we have a happy ending, when I look back at this scene in retrospect, I take it at its word. If it was King doing it, it would obviously be lampooning the entire church. At one point, we're going to enter into the ear, the cutoff ear. I, I'm not sure if that's happened at this point yet, but yeah, this could just be all like some weird delusion from Dorothy's husband as he's dying, as we'll see him at the end. Like, you don't know with Lynch. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, everything's subjective. And yeah, I love those interludes. Yeah, that kind of stuff is what it's the kind of thing no other director would think to put in here. Alfred Hitchcock would make this movie, did make this movie. It's called Rear Window, but he would never think to put this kind of stuff in here. 
My disappointment in Frank, though, I guess this is where I can articulate that, is as the investigation continues, Jeffrey continues to see Sandy, Jeffrey also continues to see Dorothy, and through that, he follows her to the club and sees that Frank is going to those shows, and he's able to follow Frank to his home as well. I don't feel like Frank has any other dimension to him, other than the fact that he has an alternate identity known as the well-dressed man. For some reason, at certain points of the time, he's interacting with the same people with a fake mustache and a leather suit. For the most part, though, I feel like he's all fucks all the time. He's, He's an id gone wild, and after a while... That's just not that interesting. I will agree with you there. At some point, like, that act does get old. But I'm enjoying the mystery, like, when Jeffrey has his hidden camera. I don't know if you've read Paul Austere's New York trilogy, especially City of Glass, but it's this postmodern detective noir stuff where it's not about who you're looking for. You end up, you know, the greatest mystery is you, to put it in a trite uh, cliche. But I do feel this is about Jeffrey really sleuthing his own being and not so much Frank or these other characters. I gotta love that detail that it is a shoebox camera, that it is a homemade camera, because that's so Lynch. I mean, and Lynch did this throughout the production, is that he would go and they were like, oh, we, we need a light source over here but we don't have one lynch literally would go and make a lamp he's like he's just that kind of guy where like he just will design something and make something up on the spot and so that jeffrey would be like i need to take photos of these bad men let me get a shoebox and make my own camera rather than go buy one it's just hilarious i actually think it was a bought camera and what he did he had two things he had a regular camera trigger that you can get with any camera just a corded button you push But then he was also pulling a string that pulled a trap door on the shoebox so that the camera was hidden. I may just know too much about photo equipment. This is also where we see that man that stopped by Dorothy's apartment, the yellow man. He is also hanging out with these guys. I thought he was a Century 21 real estate agent. I don't even know if people know what that is anymore. Is that company still in business? (laughs) Well, you you remember the coats though, right? I remember them because I lived in the (laughs) 80s. But yes, those were realtors that wore those really tacky, ugly. I think they were the only ones that had those mustard jackets. But he is a cop. What we'll eventually find out is that he is the partner of Detective Williams and that he is, it's more clear in the script, he's the man that is assigned to Dorothy's apartment. It's said that she's under surveillance. Sandy knows that they've been watching her for weeks. This is the guy that's been watching her. And the reason why they haven't caught anything is because he is also working for Frank. Yeah, I caught that detail on the second watch is that Sandy didn't have a lot of detail. She goes, it's not his case. And so I'm like, okay, it's the partner's case. This is all tying together. Little subtle clues. I love that in mystery films. And above all, I find this to be a mystery, even though we're going to get this scene not too long after where... Jeffrey's just able to spell out absolutely everything. I mean, he's basically telling me, I'm like, oh, that's the husband's ear? I didn't quite get that exactly. And all of it is just laid out very straightforward, no guesswork. But here's where we also 
get the escalation of both his romances. He convinces Sandy to break up with Mike and starts making out with her in the diner while just having some pretty explicit sex with Dorothy as well. Yeah, that chip smile that she has when she gets hit there. It is just something that stays with you. It's it's quite upsetting. I know this movie took a lot of heat for its glamorization of violence towards women, and I don't think you can argue that it doesn't in some way. But I I think that that is the dynamic that we're seeing here, that Jeffrey's anger on some level is that, you know, at least maybe I'm projecting my own. But sometimes in domestic situations where you're angry with your parent, you accept that your dad is a raging asshole, that he's just a sick whatever, but she chooses to stay in it. And you can be mad, just as mad as your mother for putting up with the abuse as the abuser himself. And that's what I kind of see is going on between Frank and Dorothy and, yeah, their surrogate child, Jeffrey, here. Yeah, he wants to rescue her, but yet at one point Frank's going to look at Jeffrey and say, we're the same. And I think what we're supposed to get out of this is that inside Jeffrey could become this. I mean, it's very Return of the Jedi, you know, go to the dark side. You can either... Go to the light side and have, you know, probably missionary boring sex with Laura Dern for the rest of your life. Or come on over and smack on Isabella Rossellini for a while and it's going to get kinky. It's always a stretch for me to believe that Jeffrey could be Frank. I just don't think that anyone could be Frank other than Dennis Hopper. I think (laughs) Frank has never really existed, not to this extreme. He is a cartoonish exaggeration of our darkest impulses. But I do understand that, yes, what Jeffrey is fearing, at the very least, is that he could become this father figure, and and he does not want to be. It's part of his ego and his identity that he saves women, that he doesn't hurt or misuse them. And there's no other way to characterize what Frank is doing here. But he's pulled into hitting her, and he likes it. He hesitates. You know, he hits her once, but out of, like, just instinct. She smacks him, he hits her back. And then... She smiles and he pulls back that hand to do the backhanded hard slap and he stops. And then he's like, no, I want to do this. And he hits her. So that's kind of the pull I see. And being a Lynch movie, I could expect this to end either way. You know, this could be his own soul consumed by violence and kink. I mean, he's a pervert already. You know, are you a pervert or a detective? That's the question of the movie. But when he becomes a peeping Tom out of that closet, he is a pervert. And now he's giving into that. It makes me wonder if after a few years, if Sandy might be getting a few smacks for kink. And maybe she would enjoy it. I mean, again, it's not really about what he's going to be sexually turned on by. To me, the way this is playing is I'm being lured to do things. I'm being goaded to do things that I I fear if I do them will change the way that I see myself. And I think it's that identity that he's struggling here with. He wants to be the good boy for her. He doesn't want to be the violent guy that beats up on her like Frank. And this is where they get busted. This is where the movie really gets very Dennis Hopper, if you will. That yeah. They finally give him full reign. And this is my favorite scene. When they go on their joyride, you've got not just Dennis Hopper, but... Backing him up, his backup band, we get Jack Nance giving a wonderful deadpan delivery, and I didn't notice his face, but I know that laugh, Brad Dourif in the silver suit. Yes, two years before Chucky, is here he is. Same laugh, 
He was also in Dune. A lot of these people are, are repeat players. Even Dennis Hopper was in a cut scene of Dune. I mean, a lot of these people had worked with Lynch. And uh, yeah, they feel like Harkonnens. They feel like they're just crazy guys that are yeah out for a joyride. What could that be? Well, in Eraserhead, in heaven, everything's all right. But in this film, you go to pussy heaven, it gets real scary. <laughs> There is a deleted scene that is a preface to arriving in Ben's apartment, cat house, whatever that is. But uh, if it looks like they stop at a bar and then suddenly they're in a residence, it's because there is a missing scene in between. So if you like Dennis Hopper, you should find this scene. I didn't feel like it added much other than just a lot more fucks and a woman that sets her nipples on fire. But uh, he does beat <laughs> up on the man that made him drop the ear and a and the original cloth of blue velvet in that field. You find out that he was distracted selling drugs to someone and that's how he lost the ear to begin with. Ah, I never even thought about that but yes here i feel tension when he's taking jeffrey on this joyride he obviously frank is going to have no hesitation about killing jeffrey and again i'm into this movie and i could see how that would be one way this story could end is with him mutilated or dead it's also really really given me a flash forward to Lost Highway. There's a scene really similar to this we're going to be discussing when we get to that movie. But this whole manic energy. You say a lot of fucks. Well, okay, fuck it. I don't mind that. I like the way he's acting, the way he's forcing both Jeffrey and Dorothy to be like his puppets. And Dean Stockwell, I didn't know this man could give such a nuanced performance as he does here as Ben. Would you say suave? I probably would. I don't know if he's suave or nuanced, but it it may be my favorite performance in this film. (laughs) He's great. Just those big eyebrows that I think are makeup and just the half-closed lids and the way he's just so calm in the midst of all this violence around him. And it makes you think maybe he's just subject to it but he's gonna take a swipe at jeffrey too, give him a punch in the gut he's enjoying it and i'm enjoying him as a counterpoint to frank i think the two play off each other real well i also enjoy the background gang duraf and nance get some lines in here there's another guy too nobody cares about hunter yeah there is another guy and i can't tell you a line he says and i can't tell you who he is he just has a cackle. When they go to this, whatever this is, I don't know if it's a whorehouse, what, but it's where Dorothy's child is being kept. Yeah, this is where I tend to get a little sick of Frank. He becomes very one note with all his fucks here. He'll fuck anything, all that. Oh, but I love that because then he just cuts away, he disappears. And uh, you hear a screech of the tires, but yeah, he's it's a jump cut. There is an interesting editing choice. But what I'm into is all these background characters. Ben, played by Stockwell well and jack nance and just the weird women sitting in the background it almost feels like a john waters film maybe because they're large women with big beehives but it again it's all that background dressing that i'm really enjoying yeah let me tell you where this comes from because i do feel like lynch is taking from cinema history at this point for the most part lynch is not a cinemaphile he doesn't go to old movies to recreate scenes and moments that he loves But I do think that he and many filmmakers of his generation were influenced by Kenneth Anger, uh, an experimental filmmaker who in the 1950s and 60s made all of these 
homoerotic biker Nazi occultist movies that I watched in film school. He has a, a, a huge following. He actually used the song Blue Velvet in the way that Lynch uses it uh, in the film Scorpio Rising. And a lot of these characters, if you like the women and, and all that's going on here, I think Ben is the character that ingests jewelry like drugs at the beginning of Inauguration of the Pleasure Dome. So look up Kenneth Anger. If you want more of this scene, there is a whole filmography from an experimental filmmaker that that really creates what Lynch takes from. The jump cut there, it really makes me wonder again. You said odd editing choice. I don't know if that's implying teleportation or what, or just insanity. He doesn't teleport. Let me just stop you there. I'm pretty <laughs> sure he doesn't have magical powers. But, you know, you can have your own reading. I'm, I'm just saying if he's demonic and he disappears. There is one point where I think it becomes like a, an alien movie, but we'll get there. And before he leaves, I mean, he interrupts Ben giving this wonderful singing performance into, I think, a painter's light or something. I usually see these kinds of lights when you're installing fixtures. It's a work light. It's something that Stockwell just came up with during rehearsal. He just took something from the set and was started singing to it. And Lynch is like, perfect. Keep doing that. And yeah. And the Roy Orbison song there. I mean, it's going to be played again in a little bit. In Dreams. It was part of his comeback. Believe it or not, Roy Orbison had a comeback in the late 80s. Pretty Woman, right? I mean, that's what I thought did it. Well, he had his own solo career. I mean, Anything You Want, You Got It was a hit single. I don't know if you remember that one. And he joined the Traveling Wilburys for a while. I don't remember the Traveling Wilburys, but I can sing you anything you want if you need me to. (laughs) (laughs) I don't. I'll stick with Roy, but Roy was upset. He didn't own the rights to his music, and when he saw this movie, he didn't like the fact that a song that he meant to be literally about happy dreams being turned into this erotic torture fantasia, but it all worked out for him. He ended up doing a music video for In Dreams with Lynch, and Lynch actually directed him in re-recording his music so that he could own the rights to those recordings. He could never get his masters back, but due to Lynch, they were able to recreate his old stuff, and uh, I think they were friends until the end of his life. Wow. I did not know that. But yeah, when they drive out into the wild and Jeffrey just gets the living shit beat out of him. I mean, before he even starts getting beat up, what's a good beating without a go-go dancer on the top of your car? She is... First of all, one of the least attractive prostitutes I've ever seen. Again, I'm thinking John Waters. (laughs) But yeah, she is so blasé about the violence. She's much more into her own dancing than paying any attention to the beatdown going on. Yeah, I mean, this is where Jeffrey starts fighting back, right? I mean, he he watches Hopper basically grabbing at Rossellini's breasts. He, He punches him. And I think he knows that that's going to set this guy off. It's not like he's, he, he hasn't observed this guy being really erratic and in that cut scene also beating up on another person. So he knows what he's in for. But I think we're starting to see Jeffrey toughen up and man up, if you will, and that he is going to take on this abuse. He's not going to let this abusive person go any further. And so, yeah, this could have been the end of his life. I think he was prepared for it. But uh, I think after this moment occurs, 
he's done with the investigation. I think going this deep, when he wakes up alive the next morning, I think he has decided, you know what, I'm just going to go date Sandy and I'm going to leave <laughs> the rest of this behind. You know, when he wakes up, I do have one just minutia question. What the hell is that that's hanging over his bed that we get close-ups of a couple of times? have no idea, but I have to believe Lynch made it. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I was hoping you tell us, Stuart, because, yeah, I had the same question. <laughs> it looks like a Mad Balls. Remember the Mad Balls of the 80s? <laughs> yeah, it looks like artwork that Lynch would make, sculpture or what have you. It looks like things that he would display, and I'm sure, you know, who knows? Maybe someone vomited, and he was like, oh, this will be great. Let's just throw it on the wall. I mean, it, it's, it was a source of inspiration. Who knows where it came from? But it seems to fit in into the Lynch worldview. Since they talk about dreams so much, having it hang over the bed, it looked like an evil dream catcher to me, you know? Instead of the nice ones that are all, you know, Native American feathers and things, here to just have this ugly talisman above your bed, I could see why his dreams would be dark. And this is also where he realizes that he was at Meadow Lane, which was when he listened to Dorothy on the phone where they were keeping her husband. Don was also going to be here. So I think he considers that enough of a lead that he could go and share that with the police. And Sandy is trying to convince him to just go tell her father one more time what you've done, what you've learned. And uh, that's where he finds that the yellow man is actually Gordon, the partner. An interesting twist. And again, remembering nothing about watching this back in high school, I thought that the ultimate twist was going to be Detective Williams is also in on this. And then, you know, if you escalate and escalate... They're leading in that direction. I think we're meant to think, certainly at this part, when he goes and tells Williams and shows him the photos, he doesn't say anything more. He just shows the photos of Dennis Hopper standing next to this cop's partner and saying they're doing drug deals. And he's eyeing him real close to be like, what are you going to do? But Williams is going to be a great poker player. I got to say, he does not say one way or another about what he's thinking in that moment. And you don't know whether he is part of the corrupt police force or whether he is just not wanting to give Jeffrey any information and endanger their innocence. He's either a really good father or a really bad one. And since we've seen examples of both, he could go either way. Yeah, I did get the feeling that Williams knew more than he was letting on. Maybe he knew his partner was a criminal. Maybe he didn't. He finally got the evidence here. But I, yeah, I always felt like he knew more about that ear, more about Frank. But yeah, I'm always guessing what is he going to end up doing? Is he on Frank's side or is he a good cop? Yeah, I would have actually found it more interesting if they wanted to go full suspense film and he was against Jeffrey and trying to just keep it hushed up and something like that. And then you wouldn't get your idyllic ending, though. I think the ending there would be far more melancholy, if not just completely a dark ending. But the movie is pretty straightforward in terms of plot after this point. He is done. He is still dating Sandy. He's covering up the fact that Sandy was involved in this in any way. And if it hadn't been for Dorothy showing up naked and bruised, He'd be out for good, but she has other plans. When she gets beaten up really bad, she sh goes to his house? Well, I gotta ask you, Stuart. I mean, we see Jeffrey and Sandy driving before they find Dorothy, and they're getting tailed by someone. I'm, I'm sure we all think that's Frank. 
it's the one time Mike, Sandy's, I guess, ex-boyfriend at this point, like makes a stand and, and tries to beat up Jeffrey, but then they find Dorothy. Was there more with Mike going on in those cutscenes, or, or was this it? Oh, yeah. Now, now he was definitely, there was a whole dinner scene where uh, Jeffrey was just hanging around Sandy. She took a liking to him, but it was just, you know, it was friendly. And so she would invite him over to dinner, and the boyfriend would be very jealous, and they'd be watching TV, and Mike would just leave in a huff. And he could see what was going on. He could see that the cool college kid with the earring was taking away his girl and that he couldn't compete. And and you saw him brooding. But, you know, he's a sweet guy. At the end of the day, yeah, he's all he's drunk and he's talking tough about how he's going to beat up this guy. But he quickly caves. Certainly when he sees Dorothy on the lawn, he makes one ill-chosen joke about, is that your mother? Uh, bringing that theme up again and then quickly is like i'm sorry let's get out of here guys this is terribly embarrassing for everyone yeah the mother thing i thought it was actually a your mama joke but i'm seeing what you're saying there but that seems like a really weird thing to say when you see somebody shambling out completely naked not even trying to cover herself they're drunk keep in mind a lot lot of heineken's going on in that bloodstream there (laughs) And is Dorothy, what is she, cut up? It looks like she's been beat or something. Well, you know, I had to think, this was the first time that I really felt like I need to pay attention to the plot. Normally, again, I'm just paying attention all to the subtext of this movie. I'm tapping into what it's doing and how Jeffrey's experiencing it and what it actually means in terms of the plot. But keep in mind, her apartment has two corpses right now, including her husband and the cop that was surveilling her and in another cutscene was pressuring her to have sex with him as well. That the yellow man was knocking on her door and trying to treat her the way that Frank was treating her and she rebuffed him. But uh, whatever went down in that apartment has already happened and caused her to flee. So I don't know exactly what is happening. Oh, I don't read it quite that way. Because she asks Jeffrey to go help and save her husband. She says her husband's there, but I don't think when she leaves, he's been shot in the head the way he is when Jeffrey shows up. And whatever happened to that detective partner? Oh, no, 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 no. That was done by Dennis Hoppers. That was Frank's work. And I don't think Frank was necessarily there when that stuff was going down. But she was in her apartment with her husband tied up and the surveillance cop torturing him. And I think because there was a raid on Frank's apartment, Frank thought that the cop had betrayed him and came back and killed the guy, or almost killed the guy, shot him enough that he could still be standing, but was basically brain dead. We'll talk about it when we get there. It's really weird. But first, we must talk about this gratuitous nudity scene, which is just so awful to watch. It is so hard to see a a woman struggling in this way. And this came right from Lynch's life. He said that this was something he saw as a boy, that he and his brother were walking around Idaho and saw a naked woman. And at first they laughed and said, oh, look, a naked lady. And then they realized that something awful must have happened to her in order for her to be in this state in the middle of the night wandering a city. And it just traumatized him. And he wanted to put it in a movie. And this, I guess, is a good enough place as any. But it's it's a brutal moment to watch. And and the way that she wants to cling to Jeffrey, like, how is he going to keep Sandy on the hook knowing that he put his disease in this nightclub singer? Yeah, that is just a harsh scene. And this is where Laura Dern does her wonderful lip acting. And it is really... My, my thought was constantly, 
Why don't they get her a towel? They wait a long time to get her a towel. They're at Jeffrey's house. I guess he doesn't want to explain this to his mom and Aunt Barbara, who are horrified at his getting beat up already. They usher her away and go to Sandy's house, and Sandy's mom throws a coat on her eventually and calls the paramedics. But yeah, it is a lot of nudity, and of course it's, it lingers on that because Lynch knows he wants to make us feel uncomfortable, and, and he is playing this scene for all that it's worth. And it is torture. It is torture to see this agonized woman under the delusion that she's sometimes talking to her husband, Don, and sometimes she's aware that it's Jeffrey. And maybe sometimes she thinks it's even Frank because, again, she she relishes the idea that he put a disease in her. I just think that's a break of blind. Later on, she says, I can still feel you in me. I, I took that very literally as ejaculate, but now I'm wondering if it was metaphorically the disease. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it is ejaculate. I think you're right on the okay. right on the page there. But, uh, <laughs> you know, this is uh, graphic stuff we're dealing with. But Sandy's pretty forgiving. I mean, she is wholesome to the core that, you know, Jeffrey takes Dorothy to the hospital and calls her from a payphone and... She's like, okay, I still love you. I just couldn't watch that. And I'm like, you are very understanding, Sandra. Good on you. Yeah, I thought it was going to be a hot topic, a breaking up point between them. I mean, the way Dorothy is, I love you, love me. And he's embracing her and she's naked. And that look that Laura Durr does, you know, already talked about with her lips. Yeah, I, I thought that was it for Sandy and Jeffrey. Yeah, it's it's impossible to believe it wasn't, you know? How the hell does that not mean the end of that relationship? You can't be cool after saying after a line like that. You can't play it off of like, "Oh baby, you so crazy." No, that <laughs> is like, "Oh yeah, I've been doing this." And surprise, <laughs> just go the shaggy route. It wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't think that's going to play, but I think Sandra knows that about Jeffrey and just accepts that he's good. And more importantly, Jeffrey knows that he wants Sandy, too, that he has done what he wanted to. He has saved this woman. She is now under someone else's care, and he doesn't have to to worry about her. He can let that go, and he doesn't have to play that role anymore. And so he basically just goes back to the apartment, yeah, to see what he can do for Don, and stumbles into a scene I cannot explain but love. I find it interesting because we have followed Jeffrey through every frame of this film. Wherever Jeffrey went, we went. But now we're going to start seeing scenes of what's happening at Frank's apartment, we're going to see what Sandy is doing, trying to reach her father. I feel that in the sake of serving the narrative and building the suspense, we lost what was a really tight point of view to this point. Yeah, well, this ending does feel like a quick wrap up for a movie that feels languid and slow. And certainly the middle of this movie, it feels like we're drifting and falling and we, I don't know where we're going to land. The climax is, I mean, the movie is over in, in 12 very rapid minutes here. We're at a climax that we may not have realized. And yet it doesn't stop getting any less bizarre. Like when Jeffrey goes back to the apartment and the yellow man He's standing up, but I'm pretty sure he's dead, and that TV's smashed, and we have those classic Lynch sounds of just electricity emitting. I, I really thought, I'm like, is this like an alien invasion? Is he like really a robot? And it, like, for a second, I'm like, what is going on here? Like, it, it is such a bizarre <laughs> scene to walk into. 
I felt like Arnie watching Eraserhead. I'm like, is this about a bird? What, what, what are we seeing here? <laughs> and I thought it, we were in a director's retrospective that we covered last year. This is Reservoir Dogs, right? Like the, the way that the guy's tied to the chair and the ear cut off and all of that. I, I was wondering if Tarantino took the idea for that cut off ear from this film. Yeah. What weirded me out was the bad cop. He has brains coming out of his skull and he's standing there alive. Again, I jumped ahead in my mind to what happens to Leo with new shoes and all that kind of brain damage thing. But that's the one that weirded me out. I can get dead, but what happened to that man to have <laughs> brains popping on the outside of his skull? I don't know if he's even dead at this point because like something's going to happen and his arm's going to like shoot out and throw something. Yeah, that's why I got like Leo. He's brain damaged, but he is alive. Yeah, he is not dead. Frank put a love letter in him, but it didn't take him totally out. And Frank will come back and finish the job. We will see that here in the climax. Uh, first, we hear on the police radio that, in fact, we get confirmation Detective Williams is a good guy. He was working against his partner without his knowledge, forming a SWAT team to raid Frank's place. And we see in montage that while many cops died, it looks like, yeah, Brad Dorif and Jack Nance and all of those Kenneth Anger wannabes are gunned down. But Frank gets away because he has that awesome disguise, I guess. <laughs> when I saw the first photos, I'm like, yeah, that's Dennis Hopper. And I mean, it's just, it's not a good... It disguise. is obvious, right? I didn't yeah. know whether or how it would play. I knew the surprise. Lynch will do this again in Twin Peaks, and I never guessed that surprise. But here I thought it was obvious, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. And what confuses me is not once but twice, Jeffrey says that the yellow man and Frank go in, and then the yellow man comes out and meets the well-dressed man, who is also Frank. So how did Frank, like, pull this maneuver of coming outside the building and getting out there ahead of the yellow man who just left his place? It, does the yellow man know this is the disguise and he's just wearing it to go? They killed some drug dealers at one point, so maybe he just wore it to kill the drug dealers? I don't know. Yeah, you know, you don't know what yellow man knows because, yeah, at this point, he's not talking. He is <laughs> he is not going to be able to tell his side of the story. And again, I don't feel like this crime stuff really does add up completely to a totally logical understandable like plot i don't feel like i totally get it or would ever get it i see it again i'm looking more at the subtext the metaphor that that this evil psychotic rambling infantile madman also wants to have this demeanor of being well-dressed a businessman as it were again i'm thinking about a father figure and this is building up to that final father-son confrontation with with jeffrey and frank here in the apartment where it's it's basically him being discovered in the closet this time by frank and this time he's the one armed i mean I do like this scene with Frank. I love, and Lynch did this earlier, the POV shots. You're not looking through the slats, but you just get a static wide-angle shot of the apartment as Jeffrey sees it from his vantage point in the closet. You don't see Dennis Hopper go into the various bedrooms where he thinks Jeffrey's hiding because of a ruse with the police radio. You just see him come out looking around. He's going to put both the TV and the yellow man out of their misery. And then go towards the closet. And 
I was surprised it went like it did. I mean, I guess I'm used to more modern movies where you shoot the closet and then check to see if somebody's in it. He decides to open the door first, and that's his fatal mistake. Yeah, but that doesn't seem like Frank to just shoot and get someone without them looking. He wants to monologue. He wants to be that evil persona. I don't know what he expects out of Jeffrey, but he must not think that he would be the kind of guy that that packs firepower, that would shoot back, that he would hide in a closet, but not would be ready for him with, yeah, the Gordon's gun. And Jeffrey could have gotten away. I thought that was an interesting thing, that Frank actually thinks he's back in the bedroom. Jeffrey has a moment where he could run out the door... He instead chooses to grab that gun and go back into the closet. So I think that this is the act of maturity. It is the decision. Much like a racer head and doing what he does to that baby, it's an act of violence that takes him to a new level to be determined. Yeah, I mean, you say he couldn't be Frank. He could have let the police arrest Frank. He chooses to stay and shoot Frank in the head. I don't know that Frank would have waited there just with a gun pointed at him. I think that he would have shot him. No, but you like you say, he could have gotten out of the room. He chose to go back in the closet and wait to shoot Frank. Yes, but I don't think that he could have like made Frank drop his weapon or intimidate him. It was either no. shoot and kill him or run away and... That was the choice made. And if he hadn't shot and killed Frank, nobody would have saved him. That Sandy and the police detective arrived just way too late. Only can witness what he's done, but would not have saved him. And I misremembered. I remembered that Dennis Hopper sucked on nitrous gas. My memory was that he died from suffocation, like it got trapped on him. And now I realize I was thinking Little Shop of Horrors with Steve Martin. (laughs) Yes, that was a different movie from 1986. And then... Jeffrey goes out in the hall and Lynch does this kind of weird thing where like the light above him gets really bright and it makes a sound kind of like a I'm end up thinking of a bug light and I know he does some stuff like that in Twin Peaks too. I'm not quite sure what it's signifying here. Like is he going into the light? He's entering positivity. Well, we do see that in Eraser Head where it I guess fade to white, you would call it. Yeah, where are you going to another place? Are you going to heaven? Uh, we'll see where these characters go after it fades to white, and it does seem very heaven-like. Yeah, and he's hugging Sandy, who had the whole dream about Robin's bringing light to a very dark time and world. I think that this is the beginning of his quote-unquote happy ending. And when Frank dies, the light bulb goes out. I mean, he's constantly been saying, now it's dark, now it's dark. He's dead. And the lights are out. It is dark, and we're in a very rapid denouement here of police and mostly lovey-dovey scenes with Jeffrey and Sandy. Yes, with the awesome song Mysteries of Love, Angelo Badalamente and Julie Cruz working together for the first time on a song that wasn't supposed to be this in theme. It was actually, there was a band called This Mortal Coil that had a shoegazer anthem that Lynch really wanted. And when he couldn't afford to buy it, he was like, write me a copycat. But I don't know, I've always loved this song. I think it is haunting and beautiful and stands up with anything that they do together in Twin Peaks. We pull out of Jeffrey's ear here. This the 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 montage begins with with the ear attached and Jeffrey taking his father's place here on the lawn. That his father is well out of the hospital and doing okay, but Jeffrey seems to be the man of the house now, and the Robins have returned as well. And then we have his aunt character there, and I always liked her. She says she could never eat a bug and then eat something. 
the way it's staged, it feels like it's supposed to be ironic. Is she eating a bug? I rewound. I tried to zoom. I can't figure out what she's eating. Yeah, I think that's that's the joke, is that she is so judgmental about whether other animals would do, but she herself doesn't seem to be too discerning. She had a much bigger part in the original conception of the movie and the screenplay. She was constantly swatting bugs and termites that were infecting the whole house. So I think it was just her thing. She she just didn't like bugs, but she did like whatever that <laughs> gacky, chocolatey, I hope it was chocolate, smudge that she put in her mouth. Yeah, and this is an actress, I found myself paying attention to her because she was Happy Gilmore's grandma in the Adam Sandler movie, so. <laughs> of course. Yeah, I do. Look, there, there's Roy Orbison's in Dreams. There, there's a lot of talk about dreams. I'm not going to say this is like some weird fantasy, but it does seem weird that like the dream that Sandy had is coming true at the end of this. That I, I don't think that's not on purpose. Like, is this real? Is this some kind of delusion that Jeffrey has convinced himself that like this is what life should be? Because we're going to see a lot of that opening montage repeated here. Like you said, Arnie, like a piece of poetry where it comes back. It, it does feel so idyllic again. I Is it tongue in cheek? What does it all mean? I mean, and this is what Lynch does. I mean, like the rain on Arrakis or the hug from the radiator lady or John Merrick's mother floating in heaven waiting for him to ascend there. Maybe it's a happy ending or maybe it's a mockery of happy endings. I mean, I can't imagine trying to go back and pretend that you live in a sunny, happy world knowing what you know about that town now, that Lumberton has been forever changed in these children's minds no matter whether they encounter another gangster or not, their perception about the weirdness of the world is forever changed. Yet the way it is, the way that we come away from those bugs, I can't decide because you got the robin there and that's the sign of love, but yet the robin's got a bug in its mouth. <laughs> well, the, I mean, the birds, I mean, the, the bugs, and again, there were cut scenes that show that the house was actually getting filled with termites and bugs, but without the robins, there was... I guess there was no pest control, or at least in the natural <laughs> order of things. But yes, now birds, which usually do mean freedom and purity and positive things, have come and, and killed all of the, the... The darkness is gone. I mean, it's obvious here. I don't need to over-explain it. But the fact that the bird is a fake bird, I think, to me, <laughs> again, it's like those fake cheeks on the radiator lady. It's, there's something about it that feels artificial. It feels mockery. It feels like Lynch doesn't believe in what he's selling here. Even the closing scene with Dorothy reuniting with her son and he's wearing, you know, the, the propeller beanie cap. Like, again, it feels very 1950s or at least a mockery of that image that we have of the 50s. See, and I don't see this as a mockery, though. I think this is a happy ending. It's strange to see it. And it is a really weird bug on the end of this movie, no pun intended. Mm -hmm. But yet, when you end with the last shot of the mother and son reunited, and right before that, Jeffrey and Sandy in love, I can't take that as anything, but we're now going to pull the shade back over and be back in that 50s nirvana. Well, if only you can. I guess if you can forget about everything that you've seen, maybe that is easy to do. I don't think I could ever unforget Frank Booth. Ah, but how can you forget or remember this movie? Jacob Stewart, do you recommend 
Blue Velvet Jacob. I mean, whether or not I recommend this film, I'm not going to forget it. I, I will say that. It is a film that is going to stick in your head and, and probably disturb you. Hopefully it disturbs you. I, I I would wonder about the person that's like, oh, this is a fun, entertaining film. Because I, I don't know if I'd call this entertaining. I, I feel like with Lynch, everything is in the ether and with something like Eraserhead that film was so abstract I actually think I had an easier time grasping onto that one this one when you add some plot but you still have all the weird surreal imagery and I I felt like that plot almost gets in the way because I don't feel like what Lynch really wants to get at is story it's a again about a feeling about ideas meditating on something And, and so trying to understand why is the yellow man standing up with his brain sticking out I feel like that almost gets in the way of what I'm really supposed to be tackling with this film but it is film you should tackle I will say that like it's not a feel good film like I feel dirty after watching it I gotta take a shower but it's a film that is gonna evoke a feeling whether that's about growing up and learning what the real world is like or the the fight between darkness and lightness i mean again lynch is creating art that you're meant to discuss what we're doing now and that's always going to get a praise from me and so yeah i recommend blue velvet whether or not you find it entertaining or or whether or not it disturbs you it's it's something you should experience stewart yeah, this has always been one of my favorite films from when my parents were kicking me out of their bedroom, angry that I had even watched it in the first place, me coming home from school and, and seeing my dad injured and then watching it. Uh, later, when my parents divorced, coming in and finding the house overrun with bugs and watching it again, I returned to this movie and felt connected to this movie personally. I personally bond with this movie. It is It is not an experience that I know will mean the same thing. In fact, I can't imagine it will to anybody else. But to me, it is just a cherished experience. It's not one of the best stories ever told. I don't feel like the plot is the point. I do feel like the second half of this movie as a crime story kind of falls apart. I get a little tired of Dennis Hopper. But I have always loved the way that it evokes coming of age. I think it is unique in the way that it tells about a loss of innocence. I can't think of another film that that resonates in the way that it does. And so it's the strongest of recommends. And since I like to also pair these Lynch movies as double features, I'm going to recommend that you watch it with Hitchcock's Rear Window as well, which is the story of another Jeffrey who is forced to re-examine his cozy home environment after a medical emergency, and he gets to become a voyeur and brings him face-to-face with a killer. It's a Hitchcock movie made in the 50s, so it is not going to have the dark, pornographic allure of Lynch, but I do think they make an excellent combo in both movies' high recommends. And you could watch the Christopher Reeve remake, then. Ooh, no, we can't. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I wasn't going to bring that one up. (laughs) I've seen it, and that is no. Yeah, so we'll be talking about paraplegics next week with Silver Bullet. But for Blue Velvet, I'm happily surprised because the one time I saw this film, I didn't necessarily enjoy it. And I've had a little bit of a rough go thus far with the Lynch retrospective series. But coming out of the disaster that was Dune, and whether or not you like that movie, it was certainly a disaster for his career. He came back with what I consider his strongest film thus far, and now we're in the groove. I mean, Stuart, you were questioning me on some previous podcasts. What is it I like about Lynch? And I mentioned that hook of a plot. Yeah, I mean, Twin Peaks 
and Lost Highway will always be my two go-tos for him because they're the ones I experienced back when they were brand new when I was much younger. But I see so much of that in Blue Velvet, and I just groove to the vibe from the Battle of Menti score to some of the imagery of prime good, prime evil, Hopper's performance, McLaughlin's performance here is really good. We didn't talk much about him, but the way he rides that line, and he never is unbelievable as somebody wanting to do good, but drawn to do bad. I'm really glad that we revisited it for this, and it's a strong, strong recommend. I really, really like this film, and it's a hard film to watch. I can't say I'll be returning to it annually, but I will be returning to it. Well, I don't know what sounds I made, what monkey noises, but I, I, I'd like to make a few to know that, that you did change <laughs> your mind. That, that's great. I'm glad that you've had a finally a positive experience with a film that I feel like is lynched through and through. I mean, you can like Elephant Man. You can like Dune. No, I really can't like Dune. <laughs> well, some people can, but those were works for hire. You know, he was trying to make something for somebody else. This and Eraserhead, they feel like personal movies. They're coming from inside of him. They're original stories. And I do feel like that's why it's core him. It's essential Lynch to see this if you want to understand him as a director. And another essential, almost as important to me, is Twin Peaks, which we, I can't believe, the same week, but this Friday, February 24th, the day that Laura Palmer died in 1989, we are kicking off Now Peaking with a free show for everyone. We're reviewing the two-hour pilot. And then if you can join us as a donation series at nowpeakingpodcast.com, you can join us for 29 more episodes. We're going to cover that entire first two seasons that aired on ABC television every day the gimmick of the show was that each episode was a day in the life of twin peaks we are going to do that you're going to experience the story in real time every day from friday we are going to be releasing a new show and i think that's so cool as i sit here in stunned silence as the editing work suddenly just hits me in my chest <laughs> <laughs> that's why i'm like you keep wanting to add more shows i'm like um okay you do know the demand of this Whew, that's gonna be a lot but yes and we will be bringing the twin peaks pilot review we'll put that on the now playing feed to give everyone that taste and because the Twin Peaks pilot was released as a movie. It sure was, in Europe, with a different ending. Yes, a much different ending. They wrapped it up, sort of. <laughs> wow, they wrapped it up <laughs> real early. <laughs> yes, it was much like Blue Velvet here. It ended quick. <laughs> I'm looking forward to hearing about how it ended in Europe. But that's this Friday, and then every day through the end of March at NowPeakingPodcast.com. Of course, the whole reason we're doing Lynch entirely is the upcoming new episodes of Twin Peaks for Showtime that we will also be reviewing at NowPeakingPodcast.com. Just not in that first... 30-day period. We're going to build up to Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me. We will reconnect on the Tuesday when we release that here at Now Playing, and everyone will be able to hear Fire Walk with me, whether you subscribe to NowPeakingPodcast.com or not. And yeah, eventually we're going to work through the rest of his resume and then that new season. And then Now Peaking Podcast, if you've been following our Now Playing Podbean, where we've opened the vault and brought those shows back, 
And there's also the subscription that gets you every show in the vault, plus everything we do for 12 months. That's how we're going to be doing it at Now Peaking Podcast. Each episode is only going to be 99 cents. Oh, so if you only want to hear the episode where the killer's revealed, which is episode 14, uh, you can just get that one. Or if you just want the show where James leaves Twin Peaks and goes to work on some lady's <laughs> car. That was a couple episodes, but yeah, <laughs> those later ones, man, I don't know about that, but uh yeah, it'll be fun to go back. There, It won't be about whether we recommend the episodes or not. We're not doing it as individual movies. We recommend the series. We wouldn't be doing it otherwise. But there are some hills and valleys, I do recall, in that second season of the show. Yes, and then there will be about 39 episodes total from what we know about what Showtimes is doing. So you can save a little bit if you get the season pass that gets you all three seasons. So all those details are at nowpeakingpodcast.com. And if you want a little bit more of Virginia, Dino De Laurentiis, and Ed from Twin Peaks, join us next week here. We're going to get back to Stephen King and Silver Bullet. A movie that was almost in our underrated movies book. Why isn't it? Join us next week. That's telling. So Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. Now it's dark. Hey, you want to go for a ride? Thanks. No thanks. What, what does that mean? I don't want to go. Go where? For a ride. A ride. Now that's a good idea. Okay, let's go. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's David Lynch Retrospective Series, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. I uh, guess you gotta get back home pretty soon, huh? Mm, not really, why? Now that you've heard this movie review, head to nowpeakingpodcast.com to hear Arnie, Stewart, and Jacob review every episode of the Twin Peaks TV series. I mean, it sounds like a good daydream, but actually doing it's too weird. It's too dangerous. Sandy, let's just try the first part. And go to booksandnachos.com to hear reviews of all the Twin Peaks-related books and audiobooks. I'm involved in a mystery. I'm in the middle of a mystery, and it's all secret. Come back to nowplayingpodcast.com to hear our reviews of other films such as Blade Runner, Ocean's Eleven, the James Bond films, and more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com and come back each week for another new movie review. I like being with you last night. Want to take part in the discussion? Join the Now Playing hosts at our forums where you and the other listeners can give your thoughts on this movie review. The link to our forums is at nowplayingpodcast.com. Please be with me. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Here today, gone tomorrow. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. This is a fine surprise you brought your now playing is produced by Arnie Carvalho. Suave, goddamn you're one suave fucker. Now playing is edited by Heath and Arnie. 
I'm sorry, Jeffrey. That's the way it has to be. Anyway, I know you do understand. Sure. Now playing credit narration by Brock. Shut the fuck up. The film discussed in this podcast is the property of its respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. You stay alive, baby. Do it for Van Gogh. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts, and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. Well, it's for me to know and you to find out. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2017, all rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Now it's dark. Classic Americana, which is the childhood that David Lynch had. He moved around a lot in Montana... Idaho, the state of Washington. Montana, you mean? You said, you said Montana. I know I did. <laughs> Montana. <sighs> I remember being a young person and <laughs> feeling that adults didn't know shit. And we had our own drug-busting detective agency when we were... <laughs> I, was, I was wondering if you were going to bring up the detective agency we had for about three days. Yeah. <laughs> So, solved up a case, though we were too scared to tell anyone. (laughs) Your mother is way scarier than Frank Booth, that's all I'm going to say. And hits harder, too, but... (laughs) But... And this is an actress, I found myself paying attention to her because she was Happy Gilmore's grandma in the Adam Sandler movie, so... Of course. She made out with Gene Simmons. Yes. I've never seen it. I don't know. You should. Adam Sandler's best. Mm. I doubt that. Punch Drunk Love. Read the book. Yeah. (laughs)